Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. A special edition of the Ulta Speed origin store. We're going to tell you how we got started at Alta Speed Technologies, where we are today, and where we hope to skate to in the future. So, joining me for the special edition is Kenny Schmidt, one of our installers and support technicians, and Peter Dennert, one of our insta- installers and support technicians. So, I want to go through a little bit of the backstory of Alta Speed, how we got started, and I guess to start, I'll, we'll start with what our team looks like today. So today we have our help desk, which is our first line of defense for people's problems. And that used to be run by a, a gentleman by the name of Joel. So if you worked with us, you've probably had interaction with him. Uh, Joel recently left us. And so his position is being replaced uh, with a gentleman by the name of Isaac, who isn't here with us tonight. Uh, but heads up our help desk. Our installation and support team is run by Kenny Schmidt and Peter, who are both here with me. Our back-end development and research and development team is Richard and Simon. They are not here with us tonight. And then our administrative side, Sarah and Jess. And so together, we comprise the AltaSpeed team. So there's been a lot of questions over the over the period of time that I've done the show. People have asked, how did you get started with AltaSpeed? Why did you get started with AltaSpeed? And a lot of people have said, I would like to do something similar, so could you tell me what the lessons learned? And that's what we're going to try and accomplish tonight with this episode. So I've divided the period of time into epochs because it seemed like the most logical way for me to kind of separate up. The company has gone through a number of different evolutions as we've changed the way that we've tried to serve people. Some things have stayed consistent. A lot of things have kind of evolved. So epoch one was the start of AltaSpeed, and essentially I – sat down and looked for a better way to do things. My whole life, I've always been interested in exploring technology. And when I was in high school, I would go to explore a piece of technology and I would sit down in a class and we would go and we would do the web development. And I would sit down and they would say, well, we're using Dreamweaver. And I thought, great, awesome. And I'd learn exactly what to click on and I could make all the websites on the school computers. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. Now I want to go home and I want to do it. And so I'd sit down on my computer and I went, oh, I need need to get Dreamweaver. Well, where can I get Dreamweaver? I go online, I look and see, $400. I don't have $400. So I go to my mom. Hey, mom and dad, can I, can I have $400? What for? Well, it's this pro- computer program that I can design websites. We well, don't need to be designing websites. You need to be doing schoolwork. And it's $400. You're not spending $400 on software. That was the end of my web design. I can't design websites anymore. And over time, that constant barrier of, well, I can't have access to that software. Well, I can't have access to that hardware. Well, I can't play with that because I don't have the license for that thing caused problems over and over and over again. And as I got into the IT world and started working for other companies and got a job with the software develop software company and went in to various different clients, we worked for a hospital at one time and there was a piece of software, imaging software that they use that cost $40,000. And I sat in on the meeting when we were looking at purchasing this piece of software and they said, 
if you purchase a software, there's an activation. And I said, well, that makes me a little uncomfortable. If we spend $40,000 with you and we have a problem with the software, are you going to activate it for the rest of our lives? And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We might not upgrade you to the latest version, but we'll always upgrade your current. We'll always activate your current version. You paid for the software. Of course, we're going to let you to continue to use it. So the hospital bought 10 copies of this $40,000 software, half a million dollars in software. And guess what happened five years later? Software company gets bought out. They say, hey, we'll do an activation, but you have to upgrade to the latest version because we are not supporting that old version. Oh, no, 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 no. I had a conversation when we spent half a million dollars and I asked very specifically, are you sure you're going to support the software? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to support it. How can you change that now? Well, that was the old company. They've since bought, been bought out, and we, in certain reasons, aren't going to support it. You're, you're, you're out of luck. And I just got tired of doing business that way. It didn't feel like that was exploring technology. It felt like we were exploring corporate infrastructure. And then on the smaller side of things, I'm running Windows on my laptop, and Windows had this really fantastic feature where just after a while of running it, you just had to start over. It'd blow the whole operating system away and start over. And there were ways that with Clonezilla and stuff like that where you could get your environment set up the way that you wanted it and restore back to that point. But it was a constant battle of I'd get two, three, four years out of my install and then, well, time to nuke and pave and start over. And I thought there has got to be a better way to do this. And as I started exploring on the Internet and started to mingle with other nerds, I come across Linux. And the company that I worked for at the time had a policy that we've continued to alter speed to this day, and it was called the professional development policy. And the policy worked like this. Because we were installing servers and infrastructure for clients, we had access to tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment at any one time. And at any one time, most of it was sitting inside of our shop. It wasn't actually out in a client deployment. So if you worked for the company and you said, I want to better myself, I want to learn this skill, I want to do this thing, I want to understand this piece of technology better, you had the option of filling out a form that basically said, I want to take possession of this ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar server. You could take it home, you could install whatever you wanted on it, you could do whatever you wanted with it, as long as it came back in working order thirty days prior to its planned deployment. And so they would put a, a recall order and they would say, hey, this server is scheduled to go out deployment on this date, so it needs to be back in the shop no later than this date, and you brought it back in. And it was an open-end policy. You could do it with anything. We could do it with a $500 laptop or a $50,000 server, and they didn't care. And that – they called it professional development because their their idea was that you could let people go learn this stuff on their own dime rather than paying them to learn it in the shop. My gosh, did it work. I mean, it worked in a big way. And – I've continued that policy to the point that anytime somebody says, hey, I want to take this thing out, I want to play with it, we always say yes. So at the time, we were using Windows 2000 Server. And if you worked with Windows 2000 Server, then you know that it had this really unique problem where when it was set to the DHCP server, it would hand the same IP address out to multiple clients, which is sort of a problem when your job is to make sure that you have unique IP address assignments to individual clients. And so our solution at the time was just when that happens, you just reboot it or restart the service and it comes back up and usually it fixed it. So I take this home and again, I run into the Dreamweaver problem. Go to install an operating system on it. Well, guess what? I don't have a thousand dollars for Windows 2000 servers. I guess I can't install that. Don't have a license for it. Well, now what? Start looking around the internet, chatting with some of my geek friends. And what do they say? Say, hey, Noah, you could try this thing called Red Hat Linux. And I said, what's Red Hat Linux? I said, well, it's an operating system that you can download for free. I said, so it's kind of like Windows 2000 servers. I said, yeah, kind of. I said, all right. I take Red Hat Linux 5.0 
I install it on this Dell server and I set it up as a DHCP server and I set up DNS and it continues to run. Now we were using the software we were using at the company I was working for was based on Lotus Notes Domino and I could get into a whole rant of things I loved about Domino and things I hated about Domino, but they had very good Linux. They still have, so far as I know, very good Linux support. And so I installed Domino server and on this Red Hat Linux box and it runs for 30 days. Then it runs for 60 days. Then it runs for 90 days. And I go back into my boss's office and I said, hey, I downloaded this thing off the Internet called Linux and I installed it. And uh, you're not going to believe this, but this thing's been running for like three months and no DHCP problems and it, it runs just fine. I don't believe you. Bring it in here. Brought the server back. We plug it into the shop. Runs for another 30 days, 60 days, whatever. And he looks and he goes, well, this is what we need to do. It's totally what we need to do. You need to go deploy this at all of our clients. And I said, <laughs> I downloaded this thing off the Internet. I don't know anything about it. I just I followed the little thing and I clicked on the thing. So if anything goes wrong, I don't know what to do. So he gets on the horn to Red Hat and says, I got a guy it has been playing with your software. He needs to get certified. We need to get this guy trained on how to use your server software. Red Hat has a training program. No problem. I get flown out. Uh to a training center and I go through Red Hat training. And for the next few years, I spend my time on the server deployment team going out and installing Red Hat Linux on these servers for these clients and installing our software onto it. And we watched as problems just ground to a halt. We would install something. And for the first time since I'd worked at the company, we didn't have any more problems. We'd install it and we just didn't hear from them. And I thought, this is the better way. This is the better way that I've been looking for. So then I start thinking, well, I wonder if we could do this on the front end machine. Could we run this on the client end that they're using to the running Lotus Notes to talk to the Domino server? And so we tried it. We installed Red Hat on a couple of the client machines. Yeah, there were some incompatibilities with some of the software they were used to using. We found a way around that. And that started to take off and things started to get really good. And this is what kind of cemented my love for open source and Linux, because I'd watched as we had a company that spent a lot of money and had a lot of problems. And we went to spending less money. We got more stability. We got more security and our clients were better served. And I thought, well, this is a better way. And so skate down the road a little bit. Company I was working for decides they're going to go a different direction. And when we started to explore what this direction, new direction meant, it meant we were going to go rip out a lot of these Linux servers and we were going to go put Windows back in because it was just not well. There, there weren't a lot of places that were comfortable with this. Uh, a lot of people, you would go in and say, yeah, we run our server software on Linux. And they said, well, we understand Windows. The rest of our infrastructure is on Windows. This makes us uncomfortable. And they said, yeah, we're, we're going to go back that direction. I'd been there. I didn't want to go back there. This was more fun. I finally felt like we were getting ahead, and now it felt like we were taking a step back. We're going back in time. We're going back to these problems, problems that aren't fun to solve, problems that don't serve people well, and we had seen a better way. We found it. We were living it, and now we're going to go the other direction. So we get to the end of the year. This is December of 2009, and I decide... I don't want to do this. I want to go explore open source to its full potential. And so December 9th of 2009, I filed the paperwork with the state of North Dakota to found AltaSpeed Technologies. And that year, at the end of the year, as I filled out my paperwork and sent the government a check for a few hundred dollars to tell the government that I didn't make any money with my company that I'd been running for maybe 20 days, uh, it, 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 it didn't go well at all. And so that year, I paid money to say that I didn't make any money. Shortly thereafter, my son was born. So now I'm starting this company and I have a new baby 
and don't have any ability to really make money because I've left my job. And so to this day, people ask me, you know, what advice do you have? And I try and tell them, get the boat as close as you can to the dock and then step out so that it's a gentle step because I did not model success in that in in that moment. I didn't. And so I look back and I say, this is how I could have done something better. But it was early days, right? And so I was exploring and figuring this stuff out. Now, back then, it was... I had a phone number and I set it up with a service that basically no matter what option you clicked on, it always forwarded the, the, the thing to my phone number. And I had that so that we had this elaborate looking phone tree. So press one for sales, press two for support, press three for billing, press four for this. What wasn't known to most people at that time was that all of them rang my phone. So I would answer the phone and say, Alta Speed Technologies, this is, you know, how can I help you? Oh, we need somebody to come out and look. Do you do server work? Absolutely, we do. Okay, when do you think you could have somebody there? Well, we'll schedule one of our technicians and have them on the way right now. Okay, sounds good. And I'd hang up the phone, and I would get in my car, and I would drive to wherever it was. Hey, I'm the service technician. How can I help you? All right, um, what, what's the problem? Okay, we fix it. We do the thing. All right, get back in my car. I drive back to my house. I sit back down at my computer. I write up the invoice. I take it. I go to the post office. I mail the invoice. I take the check. I take it over to the bank. I cast. So I'm doing everything right by myself, and that's just how uh, it's just how it was. It's just how you started. And I hear places that they. They talk about having, you know, a business plan and going and taking out a loan from a bank. I'm sure that's a way to start a business. It's just not the way that I did it. And I've never borrowed a dime. I've never, I own every stick of technology that's in the building. And I, uh, it, 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 that has served me so well. So when we founded Alta Speed Technologies, we set out with our mission statement to serve people by empowering users with the knowledge, tools, and freedom necessary to leverage open source technology to its full potential. That is not something that we use as a, uh, a filler. That is not something that uh, is, is there just as a, hey, we need, we needed a mission statement. That is something that, uh, we, we truly believe down to our core. And I'm a one trick pony in a lot of ways. I serve people. Okay. And so I like to play with toys. I like to learn things and I like to figure out how something works. And then I use that information to serve people. And so if your widget is broken, I want to help you fix it. If you need a widget and you don't have one, I want to sell you one. If you need a widget and you don't have one, you don't have the money, then I want to buy it and give it to you. And I'm going to try to stay away from being too preachy, but there is a core value system that comes into play here that I think is important. And you have to understand where I'm coming from to understand how we got to where we are. So Philippians 2.4 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Matthew 20, 28 says this, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So that has shaped a tremendous amount of my decision making, both when I started Alta Speed and today it continues to do so. I don't care where the best profit margin is. I don't care what gets us the recurring fee from the client. I don't care what the rest of the industry are doing or how accepted the solution is. What I care about, my line in the sand has been, continues to be, and will forever be, does this serve the client well? If the answer to that is yes, well, then we can use that thing. If the answer to that question is no, then we can't use that thing. And so to the extent that your goals help and serve people, 
I'm on board with you. I'm happy to work with you. I want to work with you. The second it becomes about you, the second it becomes about your bottom line, the second it becomes about your bumper sticker, then I'm out. If we're not serving people, this is an impedance mismatch, not only for my company, but it's an impedance mismatch for me. And so you need to understand that before you enter into any sort of working relationship with me or our company. And I've never... So what that leads to in a very practical sense is, and this is much to my wife's chagrin, I've never installed a piece of equipment that I wouldn't have put inside of my own house. So sometimes that's helpful because we get really good cameras. Other times we wind up with woefully inappropriate, highly uh, technical commercial installation of stuff into a house that has really no business being in a residential stuff. And she's just kind of learned to live with it because that she's married to me. So that was Epoch One, doing everything myself off of a single laptop in my basement, uh, fiercely passionate, but really had no idea what I was doing. Had never taken a business class, still haven't taken a business class, never took an accounting class, have really no clue what I'm doing. So Epoch Two kicks in, and this is the first time I was starting to get to the point where I was overwhelmed. I could do all of the things, I could run and put all the fires out, but it was, I was sleeping next to a phone, and I never had any downtime. There was no such thing as a vacation in those days. Every day was a work day. And I just was, it was getting to the point where I was getting overwhelmed. So I start to explore hiring an employee. Now I learned a very important lesson that first year, first year of Epoch 2. And that was that nobody cares about your baby as much as you do. And you can either take my word for that, or you can learn that lesson the hard way. So back then our bread and butter was providing network services to hotels, small businesses, and internet. So if you stayed in a hotel in Grand Forks, chances are we're running the Wi-Fi for you or providing that for you, um, and we work with the ISP to do that. And I hired a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Matt, went to college with him. I'm still in college at this point, haven't graduated, have a son, and we're, I'm start, the, the wheels are starting to get rolling with AltaSpeed. We're starting to get some real clients. We're starting to get some contracts in place. We're starting to get bigger and bigger installations, and I meet this gentleman named Matt, and Matt set the standard for our techs going forward. Because what Matt did was he was willing to explore technology. And so I would send him to a problem that I didn't have any idea how to solve. Somebody would say, hey, we want uh, we want this thing. And he would go there and he would try to figure out how to do that. And he was willing to sit down and figure out how to do that. And since then, when I hire people, I, I have... I always ask three questions. Do they get what we're trying to do? Do they want to do what we're trying to do? And do they have the capacity to do it? And the answer to all three of those questions has to be yes, or I can't hire that person because they won't fit in well here with our company culture. And Matt was a guy that had a natural desire to explore technology. He also had the ability to value people and relationships above all else, which is something else that is critical to our company culture. And so as we hired our first person, we, this is the point where we started to actually get different departments, where we finally, for the first time, I could say, hey, we have one person to answer the phone, somebody else to go out and do an install, somebody else to do support. Now, it was still small because it was essentially my wife, Matt, and myself, but we had the ability to, to grow and to start to do some of those things. And what ended up becoming very clear, the big lesson that I took away from Epoch 2 was that at the end of the day, the buck was always going to stop with me. So when Matt wanted to go home, he just 
went home and then I was without any sort of support. And I was back to, well, now I'm kind of overwhelmed again. And if I wanted a vacation, I had to coordinate it with him. And if he was able and willing to do that, I got it. And if he wasn't, I just didn't get to take a vacation. And so I learned those lessons during Epoch 2. But the other thing I learned was that sometimes having somebody else work for you can be a real detriment because there would be there would be times where documentation maybe wasn't as complete as I would have liked it to be. And I found that it actually hindered me rather than helped me. And so to the extent that I could communicate to that to him in, in a kind way, we could fix some of those problems. But oftentimes what would happen is I would get frustrated with the situation and having, again, no leadership experience, no leadership training, no business experience. I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was he didn't do the way things that I would have done them. And that was frustrating for me. And I'm sure it was probably frustrating for him. But we learned through that. And so I, I basically just accepted that. I didn't have enough help that I was ever really off the hook. So I'm still next to a cell phone, next to a laptop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. When something blows up, Noah's the guy that goes and deal with that. And I got to the end of Epoch 2, and I went on my 10-year anniversary with my wife. And this was the first time that I ever truly fully unplugged from Speed. I did it for three days, and I, you know, ahead of time, lots of planning. Hey, I'm going to be gone, not going to be in communication, not going to have... Uh, any way to get a hold of me for these three days. And I thought, my gosh, I hope the world doesn't come to a grinding halt. I hope I come back to a company because I, I really believe that if I wasn't there, I was the center of the universe. If I wasn't there, everything was going to fall apart and it's just not going to be bad. And I had enough negative experiences trusting other people and not having that work out that that was a pain point for me. But I managed I think I did check in once or twice, but for the most part, I managed to stay unplugged for my 10 year anniversary and I, we entered into Epoch three and Epoch three is where we started to move towards doing things remote. So at this point, we have a lot of clients up and running. Um, we're making decent money. We have a, a relatively good train on the tracks, but I wanted to free myself from having to physically run to all of these places. So this is the point where technology is now starting to come out where we can virtualize stuff and remote management is a thing. And we got to a point where I was, I started doing podcasting during this time and it opened up an entirely new world because now for the first time we had, I had people from all over the world that had a tremendous amount more of experience in things like virtualization technology and things like storage technology and those kinds of things. And they were willing to work if I could pair them with a client. And so I think, because I, 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 you know, I, I think, well, this is great. I have clients that have a need. I have people that are interested in doing the work. Also, oh, by the way, we had clients that started to come to us over things like podcasting and through the internet and had heard about AltaSpeed and said, hey, I want a company that values open source to work for me. And so we tried to do that. And I started to wrap my head around the, the idea that I wanted to be able to do my job from anywhere. And so I made sure that the servers and all the infrastructure that we set up could be accessed remotely. And the way I would describe this to clients is I would say, listen, your infrastructure is running on a VM on your host. So it doesn't matter if I come on site and plug my laptop in and pull all the interfaces up to control your stuff here. Or if I do that at home on my triple 27 inch 4k monitors, in fact, really, if anything, it's going to take me longer to fix or resolve your issue working off of my 13 inch laptop screen. By the way, I'm blind. So it's more efficient for me to do that in my lab. Now, the upside to me, it was, I really like to travel. I liked going to Linux conferences. I like doing those things. And the ability to work remotely allowed me to do that. So it seemed like a really easy way to expand. 
had all these connections with ridiculously smart people. And my thought was maybe I can hire some entry level techs that can just show up to the client. Really, all they have to be able to do is get the smart people remoted in and then the adults can do the work and everything will be great. Right. Wrong. Uh, it was a complete and unmitigated disaster. It was a train wreck. It was beyond a train wreck. I think if you lit a dumpster on fire, they probably would have provided better IT support than we were giving people during those days. And I just wasn't set up. I wasn't under, I didn't understand how to serve clients well remotely. And part of that was I always had this ace card in my pocket, which was no matter what happened, I could get in my car, drive to the client's site, and whatever it was, I could figure it out because I'm good at solving problems. So that puts me right in my wheelhouse. I solve problems even better when it's under pressure. So this thing crashed, that thing broke, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You give me your widget, whatever it is, however it works, whatever software it works with, I will tell you where all the buttons are. I'll learn it better than anyone else, and then I'll show you how to use it or how to leverage it, right? This feeds directly into our mission statement, helping people leverage their technology to its fullest potential. So that was my ace in the hole. The problem was now I had... People that were working for me that I didn't really know all that well. Then I have clients that are asking us to do things that didn't really know their infrastructure all that well. And so schedules were sporadic. Clients had very specific software that they wanted that we didn't know anything about. And they thought because it has an open source label, obviously this company is going to know about it. We tried to do that. Didn't work out. And what ended up happening was we were drinking from a fire hose. We didn't manage any of it well. And we didn't serve people well. Now, this is the point where I would pause and people would say, man, you're you're kind of rough on yourself. Like, that sounds you don't sound like a success story at all. It sounds like an utter desire, an utter train wreck. It was it was a gigantic failure. But success to me is a pile of failures that you're standing on top of. And anyone really, I think if they're being honest with you, that tells you otherwise is probably trying to sugarcoat it. You learn these lessons by doing it. And then you look back and say, well, now I have some hindsight. Now I can do this better. Now I can serve people better. And I, I tell I tell my wife and I, I tell my team, we don't throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. If we have a system in place that we're trying to do something and it's not working, then we need to flip a switch in the system. Somewhere there's a switch that is flipped the wrong way. And if we just correct that thing, let's try to tweak the system to get it to work. And so I wasn't really discouraged, but it kind of set me up for Epoch 4. So Epoch 4 is where we are today. And and it started really with COVID-19. So coming out of this, we're serving local clients well, and that's really the bread and butter of what's making UltraSpeed go. We're trying to kind of hone this online thing and it kind of is working and we're starting to get a little bit better. There's a couple of clients. If we could visit them and we could get involved in their infrastructure, we were able to continue to manage that well, but it required this first time being on site to kind of learn their infrastructure. And we're learning this. And as we're doing that, my wife and I sit down, COVID-19 hits and it's like, okay, we have to make some serious decisions because here's the deal. I'm doing Ask Noah as a hobby at this point. We're still continuing to build AltaSpeed. My my wife and I are concerned about the amount of time that we're taking because we want to prioritize God. We want to prioritize our family. Our kids are super important. I have maybe 10 years left with them before they're going to be in uh, out of school and then they're going to be off doing their own thing. So I've got like 10 years and counting to make this time count. How are we going to do that? And with COVID in the mix, there's all sorts of economic concerns. There's all sorts of sustainability concerns. We just didn't know. And I wasn't sure what the best way forward was. I could, you know, potentially do something else. I could double down on Alta speed. And so a lot of thought and a lot of planning 
and a lot of prayer went into how are we going to do this? How are we going to move forward? And I think the best way that I can think to exemplify this was actually a, a pastor gave me this reference and I've, I really identified with it. And he said, there's two ways of viewing work. The first is you can go work for a company and doing that is kind of like sitting on a boat with a diesel engine. The ship has a direction. The ship is powerful. Ship's always going to go forward because the diesel engine's always going to run. You're going to go forward full dead ahead. But you don't get to go into the control room. Somebody else is driving the ship. Somebody else is deciding where the ship is going. Somebody else decides what the ship's value is. The boat that you're in, it's a sailboat. When the wind blows, God makes the wind blow, and he's going to set the direction. And you'll have input on when to put the sails up, when to take the sails down. You can decide when to push forward, when to hold back. But for the most part, you're in a sailboat, and you're trusting God to take care of you. So which one of those two models are you more comfortable with? And for me, I'm personally more comfortable in the sailboat. So my wife and I sat down. We made a decision to grow. We made a decision to define roles. We made a decision to shift client work from a generic network to a highly customized, tailored solutions that serve people. So we figured out that we were sort of in a race to the bottom because competition is coming out to manage this stuff more centrally. We figured out how to manage things remotely. Well, guess what? All of these franchise brands are doing the exact same thing. So now the work is not so much come in and set up a network. It's we send you the router. We send you the access point. You plug everything in. Let us know. And then once you're good, you're gone. And that model obviously didn't have a whole lot of sustainability behind it. But the other part of it is we didn't feel like we were serving clients well. And again, this becomes an impedance mismatch for me. So I'm going into a client and it's not uncommon for a client to call me and say, well, our router is down. Okay, well, let's call cloud provider. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and overnight you that, and that'll be here two, three days. Call the client back. Yeah, the router's going to be here two, three days. So what do I do with my business until then? Sorry, can't run your business until then. So we're finding all sorts of ways to hack around this, right? We're duplicating IP schemes. We're buying duplicate equipment that these cloud providers have, so we have cold shelf spares so that we have the ability to say, hey, we'll put this in for a little bit until the one that you ordered gets here. And we're... To the best of our ability, we are serving clients well, but we know that there's a better way. So we sit down and we rethink everything. How are we going to do this better? How are we going to do this differently? And so we shore up some of our problem areas. We get our help desk response time down to two hours. We show up on site we've never been to before, and we start to get to the point where we're able to build an entire office, not barring any complications, and we can set all of that up and have it installed in a week. And we're working with clients to understand what their individual tailored needs are. We're, and we're onboarding clients now remotely. We have a process for that. We're able to get there. So at this point, this is where I kind of want to invite Peter and Kenny in because this is kind of the boat that we're in today, right? This is that you, you guys have been a part of that evolution. This is kind of where you guys come onto the scene. So I guess let's start with Kenny. Tell me a little bit about what your experience has been, how would you describe how we serve clients and how that's going? Incredibly. It's, it's been amazing to get to see, um, <clears throat> the work through the Ask Noah show and, and how it's come back to Ulta speed a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> one of the notes you actually have on here is, uh, being able to serve clients remotely and, and having a ton of fun with that. We've had uh, tons of, I've had tons of amazing experience. I actually brought this up at our annual meeting last week. Um, Getting to work with these clients and and especially clients coming from the Ask Noah show that genuinely really enjoy open source technology and we 
they they want to be a part of it, but they they maybe haven't done a lot of it, so they just want to learn. Um, so getting to teach them to use tools like uh, FreeNAS, TrueNAS, all of uh, you know all of these different appliances, you know, PFSense, OpenSense, all of those different open source tools and to help them integrate them into their businesses, into their homes, into wherever it is that they're using those, that has something that that has been incredible and has really stood out to me over the last uh, two years here working at AltaSpeed. Do you, as as you've looked, so we have a different model, right, than a lot of other IT companies. And I think sometimes that makes people uncomfortable because they look at it and they say, well, they're kind of off tooting their own horn. But how do you see that? Do you think that that serves clients better or do you think that we'd be better served to go sign up for, you know, Atira or uh, SolarWinds or something like that and, you know, and deploy those kinds of things? How how do we serve clients differently and, and what's your perception of how that works or doesn't work? Absolutely. And without a doubt, unequivocally, I can tell you it works out incredibly well. Uh, we see a lot of the times the, the standard direction that the uh, MSP managed service provider type uh, role, uh, a lot of the times they start moving to a more locked in environment where they have vendor locked in. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen, uh, we've picking up a client, you know, that says, Hey, you know, we don't have access to our cameras. The, you know, there's this massive facility and they have uh, probably hundreds of people coming and going out of this building daily. Uh, and, and they have issues where, you know, Hey, uh, you know, they can't access their cameras that they paid, you know, thousands of dollars for because of this vendor lock-in that's so common in side of the IT community nowadays. And we're able to show up on site and say, hey, we hear your concerns. This is terrible. I mean, you, you can't access your own stuff that you paid for. We want to help. So we come alongside and we go, hey, here's the solution that you own. Here's a solution that you can access. This is something that you can be in control of. And 100% of the time I see that customer's face lights up and just it's it's like they 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 don't even believe it they you know is that even possible that's a thing you know because a lot of the open source community and stuff it it can be such a niche thing it it doesn't have the big names of you know Microsoft or you know what are all these big different companies you know people don't hear about these different uh smaller open source projects necessarily but when we come in people light up they love seeing that these solutions that we can bring to them and how they can affect them in their businesses. So you you talk about that and and what you hit on is is so we we go into these places we see that happening where they're locked into some provider or some monthly fee or something like that and we say hey we can get you out of that and they say how and then we show up with the Raspberry Pi and Pi display or what's the newest one that we're using? Uh, RPI serve is the new project. So talk about a little bit about RPI serve. How does that work and how does that compare and contrast with your generic uh, NVI display system. Absolutely. I'll throw a little overview here and then I'll let Peter dig into the technical details. He's he's played with it a little bit more than I have and it gives him a chance to kind of pop in here. Uh, RPI serve, the general concept behind the program is it is a RTSP stream viewer. So you take a bunch of RTSP streams, you know, links basically to your camera feeds. So in a building you might have 20 cameras or so and you want to be able to create a little display station. Um, and you might want to be able to have it set up so that way you can do, um, you know, 10 cameras, uh, you know, rotating through one big image of that. Every five seconds it goes to the next camera. Or maybe you want a grid of cameras. Um, and it, it essentially can do that for you. Um, I'll throw it over to Peter now to kind of go through uh, how does that work? How does that, what does that look like? What is the, you know, how does that setting that up work? And and, and more details into, into how that project works. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's so much flexibility with 
with RPI serve because it can, you can put in like just still images. You can play like video files off of like the Pi or over like a NFS share or Samba. Um, but it's, it's all configured using a YAML, uh, configuration file. And, um, so you can literally just, you give it like, you know, say like six cameras, they're RTSP streams. And then you can say, Hey, I want you to display this in say three columns. And it'll give you basically two rows of three columns of cameras. And that like, that's all you have to do to configure it. So it's just, it's super easy. Cause like, very intuitive. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the pie display, like you had to like set like how exactly how big you wanted each window. Yeah. You can, it's, you can still do that in RPI serve, but if you don't want to get into the nitty gritty, you can just plop three and then you can create like multiple screens. So you can like have it like show like six cameras and then the next six cameras and then the next six cameras. Yeah, our RPI server is truly a testament to how far the open source community has come. There was an early project before RPI serve uh, called Pi Displays, and it was a program essentially that you would tell uh, in the program all of the different coordinates of where you wanted the streams to go. So if you wanted four cameras on a 1080p monitor, you would have to tell it, you know, the first 500 pixels by the first 500 pixels, I want this link, and then the next... Uh, 500 pixels by the next 500 pixels, I want this link. And it becomes extremely difficult beca- to manage because if you ever want to move to a bigger monitor, if you want a 4K monitor, you know, larger display, any of those kinds of things, it becomes incredibly difficult. So seeing the development that you, the community, or uh, you, different people in the open source community creating these projects and, and being able to implement them uh, has been incredible to see. Uh, I was just having a conversation recently last week uh, with a tech, tech director at a, a local business here in town about how a lot of the times in the past, open source community had the stigma of, oh, it works, it's not pretty, it's not great, but it does the thing that we wanted to do. And it's been incredible to see over the last year or two or even really three, uh, you know, just in the last little bit, how far we've come. We've been able to see improvements to where, hey, this is a usable product that polish. we can deploy. Yeah, they've we've really gotten to a point where we have polish on things and we're getting there. Uh, and it's amazing to see that progress. You know, you look at what people are coming from and their choice is you're spending, they say, well, I have to spend $1,000 on this piece of hardware and then I have to spend, you know, $500 a year on licensing to do this thing and we show up with, Again, a Raspberry Pi and some software that a guy wrote off the internet. It's like, this accomplishes the same task for a lot less money and nobody can pull the rug out from under these people. Even if tomorrow Alta Speed Technologies ceased to exist, all of the stuff that we've put in place is going to continue to work for 10 years. And we see that, right? We go yeah. back into some of these businesses like they'll, how do I describe? So we'll go into a business that had a, a technology that's there. And we just simply reset the technology, new business moves in, set it all back up, and now they're going to get another 10 years out of that technology. Doesn't They didn't have to pay a subscription fee. They didn't have to reset anything. There was no, I got locked out of the thing. No, it was all local devices. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think has been really interesting is the this show's outreach and its ability to connect with people. And that has done a number of positive things. So first of all, I we have been able to give back to the community through this show. And I'll get into that a little bit more as we carry on. But but the it allowed us to get connected really with a lot of churches that needed help and they had a tight budget. 
or they wanted something very specific, and there weren't a lot of other technology providers that were w- willing to do that with them. And so what you found is there there are people out there that they're technical enough that they can kind of keep the train moving once everything's set up, but they don't have the time, energy, money, or or knowledge to get everything done from scratch. And so we started creating contracts for, you know, if you want, Every, because we have clients all across the board, right? We have clients that on one end of the spectrum, their law offices, their doctors, and they say, I want to see a bill each month. They don't care what that bill is, but everything better work. And if it doesn't work, I'm coming after you, but everything better work. You guys do whatever you want. Do all the little nerd things you want to do. Install whatever you want to install. Tell us what to buy and we'll buy it. But then everything better work. And we do that and it, and it works really well. And so we have offices that run entirely inside of a virtualized infrastructure where it's a PFSense box and a virtual host and everything exists basically inside of those two things and that they work and we can snapshot and do all the things back up. And, you know, we have clients they'll call in and say, we got hit with cryptoware. One second. Log in. ZFS. Rollback. OK, there you good. Good to go. Anything else? Nope. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. And we're able to do those things because we're leveraging open source. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is there are people that listen to the show and they have contacted us and said, hey, I want you to do that. But then after you're done, I want you to teach me how to drive the bus, set the bus up, get the bus on the road, get the bus rolling at 55 miles an hour. And then I want to do a swaparoo. I want to drive. And we say, absolutely, we can price that for you. And then we'll come in and we'll show you. Here's the technology that we set up. Here's how it works. You want to learn more? I'll show you more. You want to see what we also can do? We can do this over here. And we show people and get them excited for their technology. And we hand them the keys and say, here you go. And it is it is a foreign concept to me that you would buy a piece of technology and not have administrative access to it. I just don't understand that. If you're the owner of a business, absolutely, you should have keys to your own kingdom. And there are a number of businesses that get into contracts where they don't have the keys to the kingdom. And so that has allowed us to serve churches. It's allowed us to serve businesses. It's allowed us to serve business owners. And as we've gotten to do that, and as we've grown, and as people like yourselves have come on board, what I have found is that for the first time in Speed's 10 plus year history, I finally have time to work on the business rather than for the business, for one of the first times since I can ever remember, I can take a day and say, I'm going to my office and I'm going to work on administrative stuff and we can start to organize and start to think ahead. And I've never had the opportunity to do that. And it's largely in thanks because we have a team of people now that are passionate about open source, passionate about serving people, care about the technology, like exploring the technology and want to go and help people. And so as you know, what the show has done is allowed us to give back to the community. So Ultispeed Technologies funds all of the stuff that Ask Noah show does. And so when we find something that works really well for us in the, in the, in the field. So I think the big, one of the coolest examples of that is the cable comb, right? Hours, hours to straighten out a cat five bundle. And now we take the cable comb. How long does it take you to run through? And I mean, it, it, it takes what used to be hours and turns yeah. it into minutes. And so being able to take that kind of knowledge or those kinds of, Hey, pocket ethernet, those kinds of things that I, that we come across in the field and say, okay, now we have a spot on the show. We'll tell other people about that. We'll share the knowledge. Pi display serve all of those kinds of things. When those come out and we learn about them and we try them volumio for doing, uh, automated, um, 
audio, background audio and stuff like that. All of those things are people that anybody in the community can use. And so there are other people out there and they either own an IT shop or they're I get emails almost every week from somebody saying, I'm looking to make a career change. I want to do more IT. And the show has given people the resources and knowledge to be able to do that. I've never made a dime off of Ask Noah. Since the day that I started doing the show, since episode one, I have had to pump money into it from my own pocket. My accountant almost fell over when I showed her the bill for the studio built because we, we didn't spare any expense. We bought the best broadcasting console that Telos Axia makes. And just because I'm a nerd, because I like to explore technology, we looked at it and said, okay, what would it cost to wire this entire building with traditional audio cables so that we can do things like Noah has to be able to have to be able to go work at Alta Speed, which means we're on client deployment sometimes for a week, two, three weeks at a time. Sometimes that gets delayed unexpectedly. And I knew when we started the show, I want to be able to deliver that service to the community every week, no matter what. So we looked into what kind of technology do we have to buy? Well, it turns out for about $10,000, you can buy a system that will allow you to connect and get on the air from anywhere as long as you have an internet connection. And barring a couple of little exceptions, 264 episodes, and I've never not been able to get on the air. I've had a couple little hiccups here and there every once in a while when we don't have good internet. But for the most part, that has worked fantastic. And when we priced out what it was going to cost to wire the the building with uh, traditional audio wires, and then what is it going to do be to do everything over IP, the IP actually came out cheaper. It was still 20 thousand plus dollars, but it was cheaper than what it was going to cost to do with traditional wiring. And so then I started asking the company, well, what's your Linux support look like? Because I said on episode one of Ask Noah, there isn't a Mac OS or Windows PC in the studio, and there never will be. And if you look around, Kubuntu, CentOS, Kubuntu, Ubuntu, Kubuntu, everything is running Linux in the studio because I believe what I say when I go on the air every week that we should be doing this stuff with open source software. I found the better way. I don't want to go back to that. And to their credit, Telos was fan. They were awesome about it. Kirk Harnack, uh, I, he was kind enough to respond to some personal messages on, uh, and, and, and help me pick out exactly what I wanted to purchase. And it turns out Axie has a fantastic relationship with the open source community. So the software that we use to run the show is a software called Rivendell and it does all of the automation automatically puts us on the air and sends our feed to the radio stations that carry the program, automatically switches us back to a internet feed when we're done, allows me to pipe in any number of virtual guests, automatically handles all of the mix minus so you never have an echo, you never have, everything is high quality. All of the audio feeds that come into this studio are processed and they are are, are set to the right level. So I don't have to touch anything. All of that happens automatically. And I can dynamically call up any of those sources on the board. And that's all thanks to the Axia Livewire system. And so all of that works in hand with uh, with the open source community. But I never got a dime. I've never had a dime for the show. I've just always pumped money from my own pocket into the show. And the reason is because I want to serve the community and I want this company to serve our clients. But then also to the extent that we're able, we want to give back to the community. And we want to be a resource for them. And so, you know, it's not, I'm so smart. I have figured all this out. I have, it's not that at all. We have over time developed a team of people that are able to serve individual things better. Peter, I could not do some of the stuff that you're able to do with servers and Ansible and, and, and automation and stuff like that. And, you know, Kenny, 
I don't know that I've ever met anyone that can go out and you, uh, we throw all sorts of weird problems at you. Like we go, <laughs> go into a place that's like, Hey, Kenny, here's a 60 year old building and we want to get a wire from over here to over there. Oh, by the way, there's concrete here. You can't take a lift in there. It's a 60 foot ceiling. There's a false ceiling underneath that. And, and then there's a trapeze artist that's flying around. Don't hit him. And, you know, and, and Kenny comes and he's like, no problem. I think we can do that. I think we can do that. I'll find a way. <laughs> How are you going to do that? Don't know. I'll let you know when I figure it out. And then, you know, a few hours or days or sometimes weeks later, you come back and it's like, all right, found out how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. You know, and that kind of attitude, I can't hide. I can't teach anyone that I can't teach anyone because you don't do it from a position of selfish ambition. Not I'm Kenny and I'm smart and I can figure this out. I've watched you in the field, right? You go, oh my gosh, well, Jason needs a, he needs a cat five run for his office and he doesn't have a cat five. So he can't use his computer, but that we can't have that. We got to get Jason a cat five run. Well, that was going to take six and a half weeks to get one. That's what it takes, but I get a cat five, you know, and you do that and you go out there and you serve. And I think that really speaks to the, the culture of our company. So as we get to the end of epoch, uh, as we get to the end of Epoch 4 and we kind of start looking into Epoch 5, this is the future. And this is, I think, what is, again, different from any time in AltaSpeed's history. We're, we're very much at a different, at a different place because I feel like we are at a point where I could walk away from this company and I could be gone for almost an indefinite amount of time and I would come back to everything being fine. And the first couple of times I did that with everybody that's, that's here now, I was a little worried. But over time, I come back and, if I'm being honest, more work got done with me out of <laughs> out of the circle sometimes than, than happens with me there, right? Because Peter is – because each of us have our individual talents, right? And the Bible talks about this too, that not all members of the body serve the same function. And so as we've hired people that specialize in different areas, we've been able to leverage the collective uh, benefit of all of that together. So – Everybody starts firing on all cylinders. The number one thing that I have seen makes a difference of people who stay versus people that leave is their ability to have a direct impact on the work that they do. So the people that have been with us for the longest time, Richard being one of them, the reason is because he knows when he comes into work and I say, here's the problem I need, whatever thing he comes up with in solution, there's design constraints, right? We're not going to use non-proprietary, we're not going to use proprietary software. We're not going to lock people in. We're not going to go to cloud services, but for the most part, whatever solution he comes up with, that's the thing that we're going to roll with. And so it's worth two, three weeks of his time to implement that. It's worth two, three weeks of your time to go and investigate access control solutions. So that when we go ready to roll it out, Hey, there is no, there is no cloud thing here. There is no service. It's just something that we install. And so as we take an outlook of how do we serve our clients well uh, in the upcoming era, well, that's the cloud. And so this is something that has changed for us a little bit because uh, we have to meet people where they are, right? And so as we're looking at what's coming down, it, it, uh, what's coming up in the future, I have to ask myself again, are we serving people well? Are these solutions serving people well? Well, I have to tell you, if you're charging somebody $700 plus a month for a service where you own their data, not them, you control their options, not them, you dictate from on high what things are going to look like and what the landscape is going to be and how that's going to function, that doesn't sound like you're serving those people well. And it's my, I have a responsibility as a technical person to come alongside those people and advise them and say, hey, 
know what you're signing up for, understand what you're doing. And here's another way to do that. And so I had an issue with Slack. Slack was of, we, we've tried a number of different communication platforms, both at AltaSpeed and we've worked with them with our clients. And a client came to me and they said, we want to be able to mute individual users. Go to Slack, said, hey, this should be an easy thing. You know, just mute individual users. Oh, no, 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 no. We won't do that. Why not? Well, we don't think it's a good idea for teams to work that way. You just can't ignore people. Okay, but when your team's large enough, the CEO doesn't need to be pinged. If you work at a team with 500 people, the CEO can't be getting pings from the front desk girl who, you know, broke a nail and feels like she needs to have his immediate attention. Like, that's not going to work. What happens is, you guys... He stops watching Slack, which is a problem for the rest of the team, the people who do actually matter and need his attention, right? (laughs) So this is a fundamental breakage. And you bring that kind of thing up to a company like Slack, and they blow you off. And my Twitter thread is still there where I went on Twitter and said, if you guys don't change this and allow the ability to mute individual users, I'm leaving Slack. And a bunch of other people are all, a bunch of our clients are leaving Slack too. And you know what their answer was? Okay. Well, we're the cloud, so we decide. And you do what you want. I'm like, okay, we will. And so... Over time, we've pulled away from those kinds of solutions because I don't think that they serve people well. And when we started the show, one of the things that we looked at is the tagline for the show, right? The tagline is that we do everything on Linux that they said couldn't be done, and we teach you how to do the same. So there's two portions of that. The first thing is you ask, what is the best technological solution? Now, if the true answer was that Linux couldn't do those things, that Linux couldn't run Photoshop, Linux couldn't run uh, Adobe Premiere, that that is those are true statements, but they're not equivalent to saying Linux can't do graphics design. Linux can't do video editing. They absolutely can. And I remember when we hired you a few years ago, Kenny, you were the one that switched me from Lightworks over to Caden Live. Absolutely. There's another example that stands out super bright to me, uh, especially as of recent. Uh, my actual background before I started at Alta Speed uh, was working at a local print shop. We did a lot of vector graphics. Uh, so think t-shirts, uh, logo design, all kinds of, uh, of, of vector graphics. And for the longest time, the program that I had been trained on was Corel Draw, and specifically Corel Draw version 7 and version 8. Um, and it is an incredible piece of software that can and do all these great things. However, it's proprietary. And that's just not what we stand for. And we don't want to keep up with that. And it was very, very difficult initially for me to switch over to something like Inkscape, the the kind of leading uh, Linux option. And and for the longest time, I I, I was I just bared and grinned it, and it, it was it was tough for me at first. Uh, but honestly, especially with the more recent versions of Inkscape, they've done some things like going through and creating an option to change your keyboard layout to match the keyboard shortcuts of other programs. So say you start and you've spent, you know, a career of 20 years doing Illustrator, uh, Adobe Illustrator, a very popular uh, vector graphics program, and you go, you know what, I, there's no way. I mean, there's just shortcuts alone. You're, you're never going to be able to be as, as efficient if, if you got to be constantly thinking about what's the copy button, what's the paste button. I mean, you do that in graphic design probably a 100 times over the course of a project, if not more. Um and essentially being able to have the open source community go through and do those things like, hey, you know, users need to know what their short, they don't want to relearn a hundred shortcuts to, to design something, um, or going through and designing a dark mode so you can, uh, work on projects that are, uh, more dark theme, uh, you know, you know, black t-shirts or something like that. You know, it's those kinds of things that we've gotten the polish on, on and, and moving over has been incredible. So absolutely, I'm a proponent for, you know, hey, 
it it might not be the name brand, but you know what, Linux, give it a try. You know, you know, it might you might have to struggle a little bit at first, but but we'll get there and we'll work with you. You can accomplish the tasks. Yeah. And it may not be the same way that you're used to, but you can accomplish the tasks. And so when I set out to do Ask Noah and when I tried to take what we do at AltaSpeed and implement that into some sort of a show form, take that same kind of passion, take that same kind of drive, take those same kind of principles and apply them into a podcast slash a radio show, what you wind up with is value-driven media. And I would tell you that we have a value-driven company because we have a deep set of values that we use to then guide our technological expertise. And so it would not be accurate to say that you can't do these things on Linux. It would be accurate to say that most people don't do those things on Linux. And so when I say I'm here to help you to do all of the things I said couldn't be done on Linux and then teach you how to do that, the advantage there, the sales pitch, the 30-second reason that you should care about that is the following. Once you learn how to do it that way, no one will take the rug out from under you. You will be designing an Inkscape for the rest of your life. And if you choose to. And I had a, I had a recipe program called Gourmet. Used it for years. Collected tons of recipes to include my, uh, my grandma who passed away. Had a bunch of, you know, family recipes and, and Indian recipes that came from my dad. I love Indian food, right? And had all of these inside of this program. It was easy to search and it had pictures and it had an ingredient list so we could pick the recipes we wanted. It would generate a shopping list. It was fantastic. All of a sudden, the project isn't there anymore, and I think, oh, no, this is it. See, this is where open source bit me. If I'd use the Meal Master or whatever the go-to proprietary one is, I probably wouldn't be in this boat. I should just sign up for the cloud service, right? No. I look and say, I'm going to hire a developer. So I start reaching out to developers, and there are plenty of people said, yeah, sure, we could get this up to date and keep it going for you. And then it turns out I didn't even have to do that because some guy on the Internet, just some guy who also <laughs> used Gourmet said, hey, nobody's kept this up to date. I want to take it over. So he took it over and now Gourmet is up to date. And again, 10 plus years of recipes building inside of a software system. Nobody can take that rug out from under me. I will have Gourmet for the rest of my life. Yeah. And on the flip side of that too, the other thing that's great is if you've ever had this experience, I love this version of a program, say version one. It has this feature in it and it's amazing. I love this feature. And you wake up the next morning and your computer had some updates overnight. That feature is missing. That can be devastating. That can ruin your workflow, um, especially when I was working in graphic design softwares and stuff that, you know, they'd update to the newest version of Corel or they'd change how, you know, a pen tool would work or uh, how you'd trace something. Uh, being Having the ability to go, no, I like this specific version. I'm going to stick with this version and not having to just be constantly, you know, hey, we don't support this anymore, so you have to update. You know, you can pick which versions you want to work out of. That is an incredible feature as well. Absolutely. I think, Tony, in our interactive Jitsi room, you can join us by going to geeklab.ninja. You can join the chat room there. You can join the interactive Jitsi room. Tony, welcome to the program. Hey, guys. I appreciate you guys doing this. I uh, had a question uh, as far as, uh, I guess, how you guys run the business. And, um, I mean, I'm very familiar with uh, with Linux and uh, system administration, networking, Wi-Fi, and whatnot, but... Uh, and, and I've always wanted to kind of do my own stuff, even like you said, you know, getting the boat closer and closer, um, before I take that step. Um, but one thing that, and I kind of want to do it a little bit on the side, but w- one thing that I, I don't want to do or, or 
that I'm, I'm hesitant to do is to dive too much into it because of the, the amount of, uh, different software that people use, right? Like between businesses and, and going in and saying, I, I, I guess, I, I don't really know for sure, but I'd imagine when you go in there, they're like, you're the IT guy. You're not just the, the Wi-Fi, the router, the switch guy, or the, you know, the phone guy. You're, you're, you're the guy who's going to help me with when I have QuickBooks issues, or you're going to help me, um, with some whatever software that they, that they may be, they may have to use, whether it be open source or not. Uh, I mean, obviously, preferably, right? Um, how do you guys draw the line, I guess, on what services you would offer and, and how do you, you know, maybe not take on the full business or the full IT solution provider, you know, role? Absolutely. One of the things that we try to do as much as possible when we have the opportunity is, you know, hey, a client has this proprietary tool that they just need to have. Um, for example, Windows 10 is a great example of that, right? You know, not everyone's ready to jump ship and just go to an operating system like Kubuntu, Ubuntu, all of the different distributions of Linux. Uh, one of the things we'll like to do is try to put those environments into a containerized Linux thing. So we look at uh, things like virtualization, right? We we have, like Noah had mentioned earlier previously, uh, law offices or, or hospitals and, and all kinds of different clients that will basically go, hey, we need Windows 10, uh, but we as an, as an IT company that, that cares a lot about open source, we want to manage that for them, but we want to do it in the best open source way we can. So we use tools like uh, Libvirt to go through and virtualize those environments, and then we have the ability to do things like snapshotting, backups, all of these different things. We, you know, we can migrate those VMs. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, there's, you know, technical hiccups like, you know, hey, maybe you can't do, uh, you know, CD, uh, ROM pass through, through a VM or whatever. And, and that can be tricky, but we really do try to use open. I mean, there's always going to be that, that place where they go, Hey, we just need this tool. That's just how our business is. But we try to containerize that as much as possible when we can. Essentially, we take their proprietary application, exactly what you're talking about. We take their ugly sandbox full of proprietary garbage that in oftentimes, I mean, I cannot begin without getting into too much client details. It is beyond infuriating when you have to sit down with a client and tell them that they're on the hook for a $50,000 Microsoft SQL license. And it's not because they have access to some great new feature. It's because Microsoft charges them $2,000 per core. And if they bought a virtual host that has 64 cores, they have to pay for 64 cores to license my SQL. And there's nothing I can do about that. And oftentimes, particularly if it's a franchise-owned company, there's nothing they can do about it. They're just stuck in that box. And so what we try to do is take that ugliness and, for lack of a better way to phrase this, turn their nasty Windows environment into a Linux application. And then we hand it back to them. And what we found is when you can snapshot Windows 10 or Windows Server or SQL Server, whatever it is, and you can store that data on a ZFS data array, it turns out Windows is way more tolerable. It's really not so bad when the, when 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 you have a blue screen of death. And I'll, I'll never forget the first time we had a client with a virtualized environment and they had a blue screen of death. And they called me and said, we have a, virtu- we have a, a blue screen of death. I, I, my computer is away. I thought, oh, no. Oh no, they updated an application and it's ca- causing a blue screen. Now what are we going to have to drive? Wait a minute. I don't have to drive anywhere. This, it's a virtual machine. Hold on a second. Do we have a snapshot? Oh, look at that. We have a snapshot from yesterday. All right before the install. Fantastic. Roll back. Hey, is your blue screen gone? Yep. Works great. Awesome. Thanks. And what would have been a drive 13 hours to the client site, blow the windows box away, 
reinstall the Windows box, restore from a backup, reload all the applications, call all the software companies and get them to reactivate all the things was Versh, snapshot, revert, reboot the VM, wait, call the client. Are you connected? Good. Have a great day. And I went and, back. Yeah. And even nowadays, it's it's gotten even simpler. Again, like I, I feel like it's been a really big reoccurring uh, segment of, of the episode tonight. But with the polish that we have nowadays, it's open a web browser like Chrome, Firefox, or you know, whatever your browser of choice is, and hit the little button that says revert. You know, it's yeah. it's a matter of five clicks nowadays. Yeah, we've gone from having software to, to control all of this infrastructure to, to cockpit, basically. Absolutely, yeah, especially now with it being more feature complete. And really, I mean, to to um, not get pulled into areas of their business that you don't want to, it's just, it's defining up front, like, this is what you're going to get, this is what you're going to have to pay. Mm. And that way, you don't get pulled into being their whole IT department. Do, do you find that you guys have customers that maybe, like, do you find you lose deals it, because a lot of customers maybe want you to be the one guy to do everything. Like, cause I'm thinking like, you know, you imagine you go into one business and there's, they say, well, help me with my, my, this, you know, you know, account, you know, accounting software, right? And you say, okay, well, I can, you know, eventually maybe migrate them, but maybe, maybe they don't want to, but they still want someone to kind of support that. Like, do, do you find that by rejecting parts of the business, you lose um, a lot of business. We, we've never reject. So the only business that we reject is when people want us to be remote monkey hands, right? So uh, sometimes you'll get a potential client and they'll call and they'll say, yeah, we want you to go in. We want you to install this particular version of a server and we want you to do this and we want you to do that. And we, we usually will send those people walking for, for two reasons. One is because it, again, it is a, it's for me, it's a seg fault in my brain that we would go and put $50,000 worth of software that isn't going to serve the client well, that they're going to have problems. And we know that before we started the process. And then we're going to send them a, a, a bill for the privilege of installing bad software that isn't going to work. I don't want my name associated with it. Most of the guys that work here wouldn't want to do that. It's not fun. It doesn't serve the client well. So there's no reason to do that. The second reason for that is. If you're looking for remote monkey hands, you really don't want an IT company. Really what you want is a contract IT guy. And we're not a contract IT guy. We're a highly specialized IT firm that <laughs> that specializes in crafting custom solutions for clients. So for, to answer your question a little bit more directly, most of the time the conversation is not, no, we're not going to do that. Most of the time the conversation is, yeah, we'd be happy to do that. Here's what it's going to cost you for us to come in and do that. And we structure those solutions and the cost associated with them based on technology that we know is going to work for the client. And so the client comes and says, almost every client we work, would this be a fair assessment that every client we work for has a piece of software that is like their holy grail and it's usually some proprietary piece of Windows thing. Is that mostly fair? Yeah, I'd say if not every, probably around that ninety to ninety-five percent. They they all ha- and it's all different, right? And so part of the part of the demarcation process is, hey, will you use software ABC widgets, and we know nothing about ABC widgets. Now we've talked to the software company, we've learned a as much about that as we can, we understand top to bottom what the system requirements are. So here's how we would virtualize that for you. Here's how we would host that yeah. for you. And we give them options. Would you like to buy that infrastructure? You want us to own it and just rent it back to you. 
Well, and essentially a lot of the case, and I know the example you used was QuickBooks. Uh, there's a lot of that that we just end up going, hey, look, we're not going to specialize in QuickBooks, but there are people that do. And a lot of the times those people, since they're already selling the product, we have an escalation path too. Um, so when yeah. we do come across, cause I, I'll be honest, we do, we have had to work in ex- uh, QuickBooks before, you know, right? Like we, when we get to that point and we go, hey, look, we can do the basic troubleshooting, but we don't know everything about QuickBooks and we don't, honestly want to learn a lot about a, a non a proprietary non-open source product um, we go hey look we'll get in contact with the vendor like quickbooks and work with them to help resolve your issue because ultimately at the end of the day like noah had said our primary purpose in this field is to serve others well and if that's what the client needs to be served well that's what we're going to do a hundred percent of the time yeah and so sometimes that really does mean that we sit like we literally will listen to the customer explain the problem and we go okay and then we get on a phone and call QuickBooks and say, I was told that and then repeat exactly what the customer said and then follow what QuickBooks does. Now, there's somebody out there listening and going, well, that's not serving the customer well. Why don't they do that? Here's the truth. If they wanted to, they would be on the phone with QuickBooks. The vast majority of our clients hire us and employ us precisely because they know it doesn't matter if it's a camera, if it's an access control system, if it's a QuickBooks installation, if it's a server, if it's NextCloud, if it's a phone system, whatever it is, if it has a plug on it and it connects to the internet, or even if it doesn't even plug on it and plugs into the wall somewhere, chances are one of those geeks at AltaSpeed is going to learn everything there is to know about it and they are going to hand deliver a white glove solution to you. And so that has tremendous value to businesses because they don't have to think about, well, I have to call provider A for this and provider B for that and provider C for this. No, I call AltaSpeed. They send a geek over. The geek tells me what my options are. And this is one of the things that I do when I sit down with clients for their initial onboarding is I tell them, hey, our, your job is not, you don't have to manage your IT infrastructure. We would be more than, we would be more than happy for the privilege to do that for you. But you need to understand enough about your IT infrastructure so that you are making the decisions. We can't do that for you because we don't know enough about your business to be able to make those kinds of decisions. So we teach you enough about your IT infrastructure that you say, yes, I'd like to spend money here. No, I'd like to not spend money there. But it's a rare day that we ever answer the phone and tell a client, no, we're always trying to limit friction. We're rarely trying to introduce it. Honestly, yeah, that's one of my favorite opportunities as we get as as technicians here at AltaSpeed is getting to be able to teach the technology. Um, it's amazing to get to be able to see the gears grind and go, oh, wow, my technology can do this or that. Uh, and that's an incredible part that we get to take part in. So if if I may ask uh, a little more, so you're not necessarily, because, yeah, my worry is always to be all things, trying to be all things to all people. So in a case where, for example, you would have, you know, if you use the example of QuickBooks, um, you would go to your customer and tell them, like, uh, you know, you can kind of be that middleman between them and QuickBooks to to make sure, you know, because, like you said, if they wanted to go to QuickBooks, they would. And a lot of the times they just want someone to manage that. So they may have to, you know, pay QuickBooks for support, but you guys would be that middleman for them to say, hey, don't worry, we'll take a look at it. Even if you're not the guy necessarily providing the solution, but you'll be that that guy to take ownership of that problem for them and help them uh, to get it resolved, I guess, right? Absolutely. And I, and, and on, to expand on that a little bit, there's, there's been some great, you know, that can cause some weird trickiness, right? Um, we had an example where um, a client wanted to do um, basically... Access, I had mentioned it earlier. Uh, they wanted to access CD-ROMs 
through passing through from their local desktop to their VM, and essentially they, had, they wanted to burn. Right? Oh, I think burn! Accessing yeah, yeah, yeah. Worked. It was. Yeah. They, yep. but it presented it as a Samba share to the thin client, so it was fine for like reading files. But it, but the Windows VM didn't see the host CD drive as a CD drive. It saw it as a Samba share, so CD burning software wouldn't permit it to write to a yeah, Samba share. Absolutely. And and what that looked like was, well, we then we go to our our position of, well, hey, uh, you know, we're not going to dig into uh, trying to figure out a proprietary uh, RDP thing. Uh, we're going to move that on to Microsoft. So we're going to call Microsoft and say, hey, how can you help this client and how can we connect you guys together to, to provide a solution? And surely times, Microsoft yeah, had the answer to their product right. that they maintained for 20 years. I'm sure they had a great answer. Absolutely. And like th- at the end of the day, we get, to that point, we go, hey, how do we do this? And Microsoft basically tells us, hey, it's going to be $500 an hour just to talk to a technician. And that technician very well may say, it's just physically not possible. Um, so essentially, uh, at that point, the client comes back to us and goes, hey, can we figure out just a different solution? Because we don't want to pay Microsoft $500 just to tell us to go pound sand. And you know that can happen as well. And then we step in and go, hey, now we start using our open source tools and our problem solving skills to, you know, further that process. So a lot of the times it brings it back to open source solutions and stuff that we are bread and butter at. Being that middleman allows us to reduce the friction between, well, it does two things. It allows us to reduce the friction, but the other thing it allows us to do is introduce a solution that the client might not have thought of because we're geeks, because we sit and play with this stuff day in and day out. How many times do you, and either of you can answer this. How many times do you go on site to a client and they have a problem and you say, yeah, I just don't know the answer to that. And you come back and go sit down in the sandbox and go, I'm going to try this. See if this works. I actually today that happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. We were working with some uh, NVR software essentially. And the way that their NVR, this, the NVR software works is basically it, does everything inside of a web browser. Um, and because of the limitations in the way that Chrome and Firefox and different web browsers manage resources, uh, it can be very consumptive. So the, when you get up to 60, 70 cameras, yeah, when you get up to a, a large amount of cameras. So essentially what we had to do was go, okay, let's strip the web browser part out of it entirely and let's move to something a lot more lightweight. So we moved to a device, uh, well, actually not just a device, a Raspberry Pi. So that really tells you how much we stripped it back, right? We, and we moved to the solution. I think we had actually mentioned it earlier in the podcast tonight, RPI serve, um, where it's basically just saying, Hey, let's just talk directly to the cameras themselves. Let's skip the NV are entirely we don't need that device we just need to see a camera feed because all this device needs to do is live previewing and that helped us eliminate uh when previewing inside of the web browser all of the jitteriness and the jumpiness and all of those issues because we can just see a straight uh solid rtsp stream of you know 60 cameras or however many cameras you'd ever want to scale that to does that answer your question I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a, as a yes. So we, we, thank we, you so much guys. Sorry. I yeah. was muted. Sorry. <laughs> no good. No, that, that's, it's all good. So, but essentially what we're trying to do is create a soft landing spot for the expectations of our customers, right? And so as we look into 2022 and we start to identify how do we do that? You have to understand what we're up against. Our competition, we, we try to skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where the puck is. I don't think that would be an appropriate way for a technology company to manage things. Not to mention, it's very uninteresting to us nerds, whatever is happening today. That was yesterday's news. We already played with that. We want to move on to the next thing. And so we start looking at that and we start saying, 
what is the technology landscape going to look like in five years or 10 years? And I very much pretty clearly see a time where if you look at where people go today for their technology, there was a time where I would walk into a Radio Shack or a Best Buy or an electronics store and I would ask myself the question, what can I build with this technology? And today, people don't ask that question. Today, people ask, what can technology be provided to me to do? And so they look at the back of the box and say, what does this thing do? Not, hey, there's a 555 circuit, and if I connected that to a 12-volt battery and an LED, I could make the light flink. And what? And, and then if I triggered that from a closed contact relay, oh, my gosh, I could make a light blink when my garage door. But nobody is thinking about that. They say, well, does it have uh, push alerts when the garage door opens? Oh, dang, that feature isn't included. I guess I can't do that. Or, oh, that feature is there. I guess that's what I want. How much is that? 12 bucks a month? Okay, sign me up. And so if you look at what people are doing, they're going into their cell phone shop. The People do more research on the phone they buy than almost any other possession that they own. Why is that? Well, part of that is that becomes people's technology conduit into the world. And so they purchase a phone for X amount of dollars. They sign up for a service for X amount of dollars, and they're provided the data internet connection. They're provided the communication infrastructure, and they're provided the device. And it becomes incumbent upon them then to go back in and say, well, I want my new device. I want to be upgraded. And whatever the terms that the person selling the device comes up with, those are the terms that people agree to. And so it's done two things. One is people have given up asking for administrative access to their devices. They just accept that when you buy the latest iPhone, you don't get administrative access to that. People have given up on thinking or caring about the software that's preloaded on phones because you don't get to say you just take whatever comes at you. People have given up trying to negotiate the service for that phone. If my, if, if my, my grandpa knew that people spent over a thousand dollars on a phone that you couldn't change the battery in, he'd be rolling over in his grave because it would seem ridiculous to him to spend a thousand dollars on a thing that you're going to, that has planned obsolescence in it. And you know that before you bought the thing and people do that time and time again. So if that's the competition that we're up against, again, we go back to this ethos of we are going to serve our clients well. So does it serve a client well to spend $1,500 on a device that's going to be dead in five years? And we know that before they ever bought the device. Well, no, probably not. So we have that in the back of our minds. At the same time, there is a certain amount of convenience and business continuity that comes with, hey, I pay my fee every month. I get the latest device. I get the latest software and I have access to the latest things. And this is how I run my business. I sign up for my G Suite or my Office 365 subscription and that's what keeps my business going. So if that's the world we live in and that's the competition that we have to come against, then how do we solve that problem? Well, the way that we solve that problem is we are going to go and provide those same services to people in an open source way. And that's possible for a couple of reasons. First of all, the great thing that we have going for us, our ace in the hole is all of these service providers, they're all running on AWS. They're all running on Linux servers that are working all over the place. Microsoft Azure is literally built on Linux servers. So we're a bunch of people, we're a bunch of nerds that have been playing with this stuff before the corporations thought it was a sellable idea. And so as we look into container technology and Ansible and virtualization and all those things, this is stuff we've been playing with for 10 years. So it's pretty trivial for us, and we have a pretty good understanding of how we can start to own that technology, take ownership of it, and then sell that as a cloud service to customers. The difference between the way that we will do it and the way that our competition is going to do it is they enslave you to their service. You stop paying the fee, you stop getting the candy. And there really isn't an exit strategy. We're going to provide that exit strategy. We'll make sure that when you say, 
I don't want to pay that fee anymore. I, 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 I want to do something else. Okay. Well, how do we best serve you? Would you like to take entirely control over it? You buy the server. We'll come put it and we'll move it over into your premise. Well, I don't know. Maybe that'll work. I'm not sure if I want to do that. Okay. How about this? How about we'll continue to run it? We'll give you administrative access to it and you run it in our data center and get your head wrapped around it. And when you have problems, you get in over your head, you give us a call. We'll come help you out. Once you get your head wrapped around that, then you can choose to buy your own server and move it on-prem, or you could just buy a server and stick it in a data center too, or you could just rent a server from Linode or DigitalOcean or wherever. We can move it over there. What works best for you, client? What would you like to do with your IT infrastructure? And let them make that decision. That serves the client well. And so we're going to give customers a soft landing spot for things like cloud-managed cameras, cloud-managed office suite, cloud-managed communication system. But when that client says, hey, I want that migrated to on-premise, I don't want to pay a subscription fee anymore, no problem. Your camera system can be migrated on-premise. Your office suite can be migrated on-premise. You can either host those on a rented server or you can buy one that you control. And we we can, we can have started to look into how we can expand that, right? Because as I've done Ask Noah and got more involved in radio, it turns out the radio industry is very much an industry that likes to be self-sufficient. They don't like having to pay for services, not because they don't have the budget. There are millions of dollars of, of industry, but you should see the way radio executives light up when I tell them, hey, this particular tool that you use to do this thing, you don't have to rely on an external service that when the internet goes out, that tool goes down. You, we can set that up for you so that that runs right locally on your, in your station and you're able to do that. And so that has started to take off. And so as that, we wouldn't be able to do those things if the FOSS technology didn't exist to make that happen. But the, this is where I think if we can pull that off, we will be at a point where we can start to pull ahead pretty quick because the cameras are independent from the NVR. So, Whereas when you buy a drop cam or a nest cam or whatever, and they deprecate that API or they deprecate the service or whatever it is that now you have a paperweight, our cameras, worst case scenario, you have an RTMP feed and an SD card that you can record to, which is highly universal. But if our NVR solution craps out, we no longer want to go for that. Or if a better open source NVR solution comes out, well, all of those pieces are highly modular. And they were designed that way because before we ever put it into your premise, we put it into our own houses. We took it. We put it into the sandbox. We played with the heck out of it until we understood everything there was about it. We tried all of the different brands. We landed on what we thought worked best. And then we made the suggestion that you put that in your business. And that that is the kind of white glove service that I think is going to set us apart because when you call Microsoft with your $750 a month uh Office 365 subscription and say, well, Becky doesn't like the way that this works. You know what Microsoft tells you? Tough cookies. Go pound sand. Good luck. You know what Google tells you when you say that you don't like the way that they changed the Google Drive syncing? Actual, this actually happened to one of our customers. They changed the way the Google Drive syncs, has over a terabyte worth of data, and all of a sudden, it fundamentally breaks the use case that they had for Google Drive. What does Google say when they, when they call them? Yeah, sorry, that's the way we're doing it now. Well, guess what? Not with us. We'll tell you, oh, you want it to work like that? Well, let's go find the solution that does that for you. Oh, that solution doesn't exist? Well, let's have our developer that's in-house modify the software so that you can get your task accomplished because you should be leveraging your technology to benefit the way that you want to do things, not the other way around. The tail doesn't wag the dog. And so as we look into 2022, and we've I talked about this on a previous episode, so Steve Ovens, uh, I'm just fortunate to have, again, friends that that do these cool things like if you would have told me 10 years ago that 
I, I would be good friends with a Red Hat architect and that on top of being just an incredible human being that is kind and caring and, again, values people and relationships above other things and was going to come and help me out with co-hosting Ask Noah, but then also help me out on the side to say, hey, here's some things you might want to consider for your business and the way that you move forward with this data center migration thing. That's, I mean, that's a gift from God right there. And the fact that all of those pieces lined up at exactly the right time in exactly the right place for the exact, that is nothing short of divine appointment. I, I can't view it any other way. And so as we skate into 2022, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to start, we're, we're, we're building up our video infrastructure, right? And we've spent a ton of time researching streaming and video recording and doing things again, doing them well. There's two ways to do things. You either try to do things on a shoestring budget, and sometimes that's an acceptable solution. Sometimes you can play with things and you can outwork a problem. Other times you just have to spend some money to get the right things to do it right the first time. And that will enable us to do things like video tutorials. It'll allow us to do things like community support because the show and the community side of Speed is always going to be about giving back to the community, never taking from the community. We are always going to try to serve our clients and have them reward us with dollars. That's their thanks for us serving them. When it comes to the community side, we're just happy to be able to give back. And so as we go into lessons learned, I would start with this. If you are listening to this and you're saying, ah, that's really cool. I think I want to do that. Where do I start? Here's where you start. You start by identifying values. And that's true if you're starting a podcast. That's true if you're starting a business. That's true if you're starting an IT company. It's true if, no matter what you're doing in life. That if, if there was one phrase that I hear perpetuated around the open source community that I can't stand, it makes the hair stand up in the back of my head and makes me want to strangle, is, oh, it's just a tool. Well, no, it's not. It's not just a tool. The, the, the computers that sit in front of us, they have our pictures on it. They have our videos on it. They're our communication method to get a hold of people. They're our, our way of doing business. It's our way of serving people. It's much, much more than a tool. And if you base that tool simply on the technical merits or demerits, I think that's a recipe for disaster. So I would encourage you to start with values. Identify what your values are and then build from there. The other thing, learn from other people. That's why we're sitting here doing this episode. That's why we're doing it as a special episode. We don't, we didn't want to be constrained to the time constraints of radio. We wanted to be able to go out. And again, for if we set out with the goal of serving people well, and in this particular episode, it's how do we take what we're doing with Alta Speed and translate that into community knowledge so that other people can do this if they want to do that? How do we do that? Well, will we give them unfettered access to anything. So the phone lines are open. You can call us at 855-450-NOAA, 855-450-6624. You can join us in geeklab.ninja and join us in the chat room. Join us in the interactive Jitsi room and ask your questions there. Learn from other people. So for me personally, and I know, uh, Kenny, you're on this board, uh, I'm to say that I'm a Dave Ramsey fan would be an understatement. I am a Dave Ramsey fanatic. But people like Dave Ramsey, people like Stephen Covey, people like uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, these people are people that I was able to learn from. And if you've ever listened to the show and thought to yourself, you know, it really sounds like Ask Noah sounds like he listens a lot to Dave Ramsey and he steals the parts that he likes and then incorporates that into his show. Well, that's because that's exactly what I do. <laughs> I listen to Dave Ramsey. I listen to every episode that that guy ever, ever did. And the part of it is I, I think Dave Ramsey sneezed one time. And I disagreed with that. I definitely did not feel like sneezing at the time that Dave Ramsey sneezed. But other than that, I can't think of anything that he's ever said or done that I've disagreed with. And I record every show that he does, and I maintain my own archives because those those goobers, they 
they trim the RSS feed. So I can't just rely on them keeping their own back catalog. So that's fine. I'll record it myself and I'll store it myself. And I, I've gotten to the point now because I've listened to literally every show since I started listening to Dave Ramsey. I listen to it constantly. I've gotten to the point where I can most of the time answer the questions before he can answer the questions. And I have modeled this show largely after what Dave Ramsey does. And the same can be said about Stephen Covey and his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. If you're listening to this episode and you're listening to the 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 key fundamental pieces that led to Alta Speed's success, if you went back and said, well, how do I do that? Where's the written guide? This is nothing new. This is nothing that Noah Chalaya figured out. Lots of people way smarter than me have been doing this for years, and they've written very good books on exactly how to do this. Stephen Covey with The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is one of those people. Rabbi da- Daniel Lappin, right? You, If you hear what we're talking about, about serving other people and valuing the relationship first. Now, there's a guy by the name of Jesus that came up with this like 2,000 years ago. Rabbi Daniel Lappin has essentially... He says the same things, but he has Jewish ancestry and takes it as a call from God that Jewish people are called to succeed at what they do. And so he's written a book called Thou Shall Prosper. And a lot of what we're talking about exists in those in those books. And so uh, as as we as we kind of skate towards the as we kind of skate towards the future, I look at how can we continue to reduce friction to your clients and. You have to balance that with your ability to to draw hard lines in the sand with personal boundaries. The reason that I, and this took me a little while to get my head under because for the long time and, and, and Tony in the in the uh, Jitsi room said this right. He said, "Well, what if you can't be everyone to every everything to everyone?" And man, that couldn't be true, right? When you're the IT guy, people rely on you, and so there is this idea that that comes to mind that like. I have to be available. I have to go fix every problem. And you can't. You'll burn yourself out. And so I've had to learn over 10 years, how do I draw personal boundaries in the sand? And, you know, it's it's funny when I tell these stories, but these this stuff actually happens, right? I get a call at 3, and, 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Hey, you're the IT guy that installed our printer. The printer, I mean, it prints just fine, but there's like this flashing yellow light. Did you want to come and look at that? At 3 in the morning? No. Call me back during business hours, you know, and so some of that we can solve because, again, so now we're now we're at an impasse, right? Because we want to serve this person well. Is his problem kind of silly? Yes, it's kind of silly to call about a flashing light that isn't affecting your business. Is it borderline disrespectful and maybe a little rude to wake somebody up at three in the morning to alert them to such a problem? Yeah, I would say so. I probably wouldn't be calling somebody at three in the morning, but, you know. A lot of businesses have 24-hour support, even though we have a nasty gram that says, hey, if you're calling after 6 p.m., we're going to charge you an arm and a leg. But, you know, whatever. You clicked five for the emergency. You thought it was an emergency. So now it's our job to serve you. So how do we do that? How do we balance the, hey, this person needs service or thinks they need service, and we want to reduce the friction to them. At the same time, we don't want to drive ourselves crazy. And what I found is tooling helps tremendously with that. Anybody that's listened to the show for five seconds would tell you that I'm an Element fanboy. Anybody that works at AltaSpeed lives on Element. I want to talk a little bit about some of the tools we use. So before I say anything else, what do you guys think of Element? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, that's probably a super biased answer from a person that uses every single day as a work communication platform. But also, I think that's why that uh, answer is a legitimate answer. Um, We really use this stuff. We have... 
uh, a couple different primary channels that we have set up here at Alta Speed. So we have our TechNet, which is our day to day. Um, hey, just I need this or you need this. Or it's the policeman's radio on. version yeah. of. Yeah, it really is. It's the policeman's radio. Uh, then we have the more serious ones like the alerts channel that tells us, hey, a customer sent an uh, email to the ticket system and, and we need to respond to this because we got two hours to make sure this gets, uh, gets solved. Uh, things past that we have, you know, just even simple ones like after hours chat. You know, this is where we, you know, post memes or, you know, funny little photos or, or just little thoughts that we had. Um, but really like we really use this stuff and it, it's, it's incredible to see how it's it's got all of the main features that you really need. You know, uh, things that I think about all the time that just are super useful and element that um, ha- make it much more manageable for us to use as a daily communication platform <clears throat> is things like simple reply chains. So being able to reply to messages and, you know, say there might be five messages sent in, you know, 30 seconds because we got 10 different people talking about one thing. You know, I want to be able to respond to a message that was five messages ago and it may not make sense. So I'll just press hold, hit the little reply button. You know, then we actually see that reply or, you know, things like the reactions, you know, you know, oh, Noah man. sends a message. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's drill into that a little bit. So people, you know, if you would have told me five years ago, yeah, you know, the thing that's going to really make, one of the things that's going to make or break a communication system for you is reactions. I would have told you <laughs> funny, right? But no, but really though, yeah. if we think about it, so you need to view Push notification. So again, kind of speaking globally, the goal here is to reduce friction for our clients and for our staff. Yeah. And at the same time, we need to be able to enforce personal boundaries. So if we think about that, really, when we define a push notification, the way that I try to describe it to people is it's me walking up to you and tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, Kenny. Hey, Kenny, I need a, <laughs> I need a moment of your attention right now. Right now, understand that when we're in person and I see you standing around, you know, standing at the water cooler talking to Peter. I don't really feel bad about walking up and, hey, Kenny, I need a moment of your time, right? It's not a big deal. But when you're at home with your family or you're at dinner with somebody or maybe you're having a very intense personal discussion with with somebody who needs your undivided attention and all of a sudden, hey, Kenny, hey, I need your attention. That's highly interruptive and it's very rude. And so Element fixes that in a lot of ways because when I need your attention and I ping you, you can look at that and say, okay, that's fine. What doesn't require that tap on the shoulder is to say, hey, I saw the message and that sounds great to me. You don't need to be tapped on the shoulder for that. All you need to know is, hey, Noah saw the message and he's cool with that decision. So you post a message. I see that that message is there and I give the thumbs up or the heart or the you know party face. And a few hours later, when you're darn good and ready and doing absolutely nothing, you pull out your phone and say, I wonder if Noah, yeah, he did see it. There's the read receipt. <laughs> oh, look at that. I got a heart and a rocket. Oh, you know, yeah. That it's huge. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a running thing now we do whenever there's something excited at Alta Speed. You know, we because of the great you know emphasis of hey, we don't have to send a push notification to send a reaction. So we can throw a hundred reactions on a on a thing. And, and oftentimes, you know, it's hey, you know, here's a fun message, you know, we're doing a party or something, so we're like, you know, that's fun. So throw a rocket, throw a smiley face, throw a race car because why not, you know. We can do that and it's not interruptive. It's respectful to other people and, and it's just a general, makes for a generally good culture at Alta Speed of, hey, we're being respectful of each other and, mm-hmm. and, you know, we recognize that we're people and we recognize that, hey, we maybe don't always want to be bugged all the time. So where Element sets itself apart, cause I think a lot of people hear that and they go, well, Slack can do that and Discord can do that and, 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 uh, you know, teams can do that. And that's true. I think where Element sets itself apart, is they have made some fundamental design decisions that really work well 
when you're trying to use a comprehensive communication platform. If you can have everybody say, if everybody, you wake up at your team and say, I want everybody to be on Microsoft Teams. And everybody says, yep, we're going to be on Microsoft Teams. And you roll out and you go to the budget people and you say, well, it's going to cost us X amount of dollars to roll out Office 365 for everyone there. Okay, fine. That's great. And if that works for you, all the merrier. Our problem is this. So first of all, we don't, we can't always count on Everybody that we want to have communication signing up for a paid account, we would never be able to afford that. Um, the ability to do federation means that we can run a community side server. We can have accounts on Raspberry Pis. We have accounts tied into Home Assistant. We have accounts uh, tied into d- little kiosk displays and all of that. And that allows us to monitor the traffic in any given matrix channel. Then we have our actual EMS hosted version of AltaSpeed. So when we have new technicians or we have any, like, you know, a lot of the people in their administrative, uh, you know, the administrative girls, they're not necessarily technically inclined. Um, although they're probably more technically inclined than most people at most other companies, but they get the advantage of, well, they just download a program and they sign in with their username and password, just like they would do with Slack or teams or anything else. So from their perspective, that stays the same. And then they can just sign out of work. What's interesting about Element is it truly is a community building tool. And I believe that. And I think 2022, we're going to see more of that, both from Multispeed, but also Matrix at large. Peter, I want to bring you in on this because it's interesting. I knew you as AT commander before I knew you as P. Dennert at Ultaspeed, right? And so you started and, and, you know, I switched over to Matrix and I pretty quickly landed on, well, no other communication platform can do what this does to the way that it does it. And so I start using it and we actually got together and started talking about bringing you on board over Matrix. So then you show up to work and you're handed a Matrix login. What was that like? Um, I mean, I mean, I was already on board with Matrix and really, personally, I'm skating toward, you know, the more of my communications that I can get into Matrix, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I like the platform and it's, on Linux, it's better, it's better than the way the Teams, which is what I'd used before at, mm-hmm. uh, UND, um, Did you, did it surprise you at all when you got and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, as opposed to Slack or Discord or whatever, like, this is the open source thing that I'm quite confident if you walked back to your job at UND or you walked into, I mean, you'd say, like, they use what? Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I was, I kind of knew that you guys were using Matrix, um, just from the show and being in the part of the community. So I guess it was kind of expected. Yeah, the the big one though that does stick out for me has been spaces because oh, gosh, I yeah. um as and I, I maybe I've said this before too, but actually before I started at Alta Speed, uh I had heard about Linux. I had never touched Linux. Um that is my life has drastically changed now. <laughs> oh man, let me tell you. Uh but coming from someone, you know, hey, my primary source of communications is either Telegram, SMS, uh you know, generic ones like that. Um Moving to Element, one of the things that really stood out to me, especially talking about coming back to the discussion about uh, work and personal and trying to balance that uh, with notifications, all that kind of different stuff, is Spaces. Mm. Spaces was a big one for me. Uh, being able to separate, you know, it, you know, I work with Noah, but also I'd like to think Noah's a pretty decent friend of mine as well. Um, so being able to have different work chats and different personal chats and being able to, you know, hey, have one account, but be able to, you know, when I get home at the end of the day, 
I switch to that personal space and I don't got to worry about seeing those work messages. You know, I can still message Noah and say, Hey, I'm last night, got a new pair of pants. I love these things. They're great. Uh, it's kind of a funny inside joke, but, uh, anyways, yeah, the, uh, the fact that you can have the different spaces. I mean, I look at my spaces list right now, just on my phone personally, you know, Linux Delta, personal work, Southeast Linux Fest, you know, being able to still be a part of the Linux Delta community or still be able to have just my personal friends and family, Noah, my parents, you know, even Peter. I mean, I, we have a pretty good uh, environment here where we can all be kind of friends even after work, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, just being able to split it out and like, oh, and also like the Southeast Linux Fest, you know, being able to join even bigger communities like that where, you know, hey, we have people from all over the world that are just interested in learning about Linux. Um, so yeah, that, that Spaces has been a big I, feature I, for me. I think what's so powerful in general is when you're looking for a comprehensive communication platform, one of the things that has stood out to me is I have different hats that I wear throughout the day. I wear a hat for AltaSpeed. I wear a hat for the community. I wear a hat as a father. I wear a hat as, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a person who's involved with the church. And so there are different levels of intrusions that I want to make intentional decisions. Again, going back to balancing that personal boundary with hard lines in the sand and, Matrix Elements specifically allows me to do that because I create one account as my personal account. The only people that have that are people I'm related to or good friends with the people. But I still can keep an eye on what's happening in the company. And so when something urgent happens, I get those notifications. Everything else goes to a different account. And I'm just not aware of any other platform that can do that. And so, again, when I look at, well, now the on-ramp is if you're on Facebook, you're a matrix chat to me. If you're on Slack, you're a matrix chat to me. If you're on Telegram, you're a matrix chat to me. If you're on Signal, you're a matrix chat to me. And if you're on Matrix, well, you're a matrix chat to me. But in in all circumstances, we're funneling all of that message back to one central location. I think that's going to get more popular, not less. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the other tools we use. So C-File, right? A lot of people uh, use things like Dropbox or Google Drive and we have for a long time kind of uh, standardized on C file and we've deployed it for clients. We maintain an instance that we use internally that allows us to sync files around. And so even when we don't have an internet connection, we're still able to access that stuff. Yeah. As, as a lot of you guys probably have already guessed, I, I'm a big sucker for a good, pretty UI. Uh, I love a, a really amazing user interface. Uh, and that's one of the things that C file just nails it. You know, you log into the web UI for C file and it looks like one of your big box solutions, right? It looks like the Dropbox. It looks like the Google drive. You know, it really looks beautiful, but going back to the pretty UI and also the fact of it being an open source product, right? You know, th- the fact that it allows you to form it and mold it into what you want it to be on mm. the admin side of things. Since I've gotten to work on the admin side of things on our C file instance, at Alta Speed, one of the things that I got to do is go in and prettyify yeah. uh, C file. Hey, Kenny, I don't want it to be C file. I want it to be the Alta Speed file sync solution. No problem. We can do yeah. that. We can white label the heck out of it. Absolutely. So, it's like Noah said, it's it's a white label thing. So that way you can go through and go, hey, I want to put the Alta Speed logo whenever I log in. I want it to say Alta Speed, you know, storage solutions server or something along those lines, right? Or, hey, I want the all of the little buttons and the UI things, instead of them being that ugly orange color, I want them to be that ultra speed baby blue what was the name for the color it's kde so here's the here's the truth it's the kde dark breeze theme that i have whole hog ripped off and just said <laughs> hey that blue is going to be ultra speed blue and that dark is how we're going to do dark mode 
Gotcha. We're okay. still working on Kenny and Dark. So, well, that's a different. That's a, that's a, we'll that's get a into that another time. Day. That and coffee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, the the ability to be able to kind of white label the product and make it your own is really cool. Uh, and I could really see that uh, beneficial to a lot of small businesses. You know, hey, I run a, you know, for example, like the old company that I used to work for, uh, a company that a ton of their business is a storage solution, right? Mm. They could go through and make it the x graphics company storage website you know and and then they can put their logo in and they can put all of their color schemes in and make it uh, really their product so we see that come up in nextcloud as well right we've we we don't use nextcloud for the file syncing functionality and we really actually truthfully we don't use nextcloud nearly to its potential but we do use deck fairly regularly to organize our project management and you know again it's one of those things that when we first looked at it this is somewhat, I struggle with this a little bit, but it's, it's the truth. So I'll just come out and say it. You know, we looked at things like Trello and we looked at deck and we went, well, Trello's better. I mean, it just is, has more features, works better. It's more polished, been around longer. It's just better. In fact, at the time that we switched to deck, it's fundamentally unusable. What I appreciate about, about everybody that works at Alta Speed is when we make a decision that Hey, we're an open source company and we value the principles of open source. And so is open source always the absolute best tool? No. Is it always the prettiest tool? No. But long term, does it serve us better because the rug doesn't get ripped out from under us and we have some control of that infrastructure and it allows us to be true to our ethos? Yes. And at the end of the day, that's the line that matters. So we get on board with using deck. It's a less capable tool. Well, it was a less capable tool when it came out. They have made tremendous strides. I Absolutely. think you know it's the, gotten a lot better. Yeah, yeah. The, they've. Uh, I don't know when they, what version they had necessarily added this, um, but they had previously the way Deck had laid it out was basically there's a little side column that would pop out with all of the details. And if you've ever used Trello, one of the things that makes it super intuitive to use is when you click on a card, it pops up this little bubble window um, with your little description and your checklists and your tagging and your comments and all that different stuff. Um, and it's right front and center, right in front of you. Um, and now in deck that they've added that option to add that little pop out instead of the column off to the side. And it seems like a simple, small thing, but when you want to just quickly open a card and add a description or something, uh, just having it nice front and center of your attention is a super useful thing. So yeah, like Noah had said at the time, it really wasn't quite there, but we've made it there. We've gotten to that more finished, polished product. And the more you use any tool, the more comfortable you get with it. And then the more you kind of iterate on it. So OS ticket, probably if there was one piece of software that we couldn't live without, if that, if there's only going to be one piece of software, it would probably be OS ticket. What do you guys think of it? It's amazing. I'm, this is the first one that I think I'm going to, however, though, I, I, I say it's amazing because really we, it's the core of our business. We use it a ton. However, this is the one I think I might harsh on a little bit. The lack of a mobile app is a big deal for us. Mm. Uh, not being able to just quickly do something from your phone while you're out in the field is a little bit tricky. Um, even just referencing client notes or, or simple stuff like that gets to be a little bit tricky. However, the scaling has been pretty decent for a, like a mobile web browser if you do want to open it on a device. Um, but ultimately, the fact that we have one place that we can go and reference tickets from years ago, we can go, hey, they had this issue two years ago, two, three years, four, five, you know, I mean, AltaSpeed's been around, what, 10 years now? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can go all the way back to the beginning of AltaSpeed history and say, hey, they had this issue. This is what they had to say about it. This was what our client responded with. Um, this is the file that was attached to that. Here's the client notes for, you know, this is how they have their network set up or, or whatever it may be. But having that tool, since it's so 
feature rich has been incredibly instrumental to our success at all to speed. Yeah, we can call a kettle, we can call a spade a spade, right? The, the reality is without Without the existence of a good mobile, they have, there is a mobile app. It's a third party hack on piece of crap that really doesn't work that well. I'm just, again, yeah. it doesn't work that well, but Absolutely. it's there. I mean, you can see that there's tickets and I think you can respond to them. Maybe no access to the knowledge base, no ability. To, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster. Yeah, it's not complete. And so we don't even bother using it. But so, and, and part of that is when you make those kinds of decisions, you then are stuck with the, uh, with the problems that it presents. So for example, part of the reason that we went to, uh, to design an element notification system for tickets coming in is precisely because that feature doesn't, there is no way to do push notifications in OS ticket. I mean, you can send an email, but then you're back to like, well, we get a lot of emails, so there's that. Yeah. We need to be able to distinguish like, hey, this is a high priority ticket that's coming in. And so w- what we do though is we take a step back and say, again, we're approaching it from this paradigm of, all right, does that mean that Linux can't do this thing? Does it mean open source can't do this thing? Well, what is the goal? Well, the goal is we want people to be able to submit a ticket and we want to know that that ticket has come in and we want to know what the nature of that ticket is. So what are we looking for? We're looking for a communication push tool. Well, Element is our communication tool. Can we tie it in there? Turns out we can. Turns out then we can use the same exact fundamental principles and the same exact protocols that we were using to handle all of our other communication to handle this one thing of communication. Again, we streamline and because it's open source, because it's based in open code that's available, like you said, the same thing that worked 10 years ago still works today. will continue to work 10 years from now. And if the OS ticket team decides to stop developing it, that is something that we would absorb into AltaSpeed and we would start doing the development to make sure that we can continue to use those tools that we rely on. Yeah, absolutely. Just having the ability to work with uh, open APIs and all of that, uh, since our stuff is so open, you know, if it's f- missing one feature, we can go in and either add that or maybe someone else has done that, uh, like our uh, email bridge through Matrix. Mm-hmm. So we, a lot of people have asked, they they get confused and they'll say something like, well, AltaSpeed doesn't use any proprietary software. And that would not be an accurate statement. We don't use much uh, proprietary software, and I'm very upfront and clear that if it's a proprietary tool, it's just a placeholder until we find the right tool. It's not the right tool. It's just a placeholder. But we have standardized for our remote support on Simple Help. Thoughts on Simple Help? Overall, pretty good. There's uh, some bugginess to it, but I'd say it's of, of all of the remote software I've ever used, it's the best I've ever used. Um, the fact that you can do both the enrolling and the just simple one-time access is exceptionally useful as a technician. Even just today, uh, a family member of mine was, hey, I can't get into my router at home. You know, hey, how do I do that? You know, well, just go to the simple website, download download this little thing. One time I can log into your computer, you close the application, you don't have to worry about me ever being in there ever again. Um, so that kind of stuff, it's exceptionally good for it. This, the user interface where it's really intuitive, you don't really have to think, hey, how do I use this remote desktop tool? It's just, well, there's the name of the computer. Click on it, open it, and you have access. Um, I have I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I know there's been times where it's been a little bit buggy for me. Um, Mac, but yeah, that that's exact. Actually, that's exactly what you were gonna. Uh, that's uh, what I was, should have thought of was the fact that sometimes newer versions of Mac will come out and you just straight up can't interface with Macs and stuff. So uh, the support can be on and off, but overall, I'd say it's a very incredible tool. You know, we looked at a number of different remote support tools and we looked at TeamViewer, which is kind of the go-to standard. The thing that bothered me about TeamViewer and continues to bother me to this day is you don't own TeamViewer. You're just renting a service, right? If Simple Help ceased to exist tomorrow, 
we would still be able to maintain our business because guess who hosts that simple help server? We do. Guess who has the license? We do. Guess what doesn't require any activation? Our server. It's activated. It's good. We're, we're good. So we might not get new updates. And yes, we'd have to move to a different tool if simple help failed, you know, it ceased to exist, but it wouldn't put us in an immediate emergency. By the way, their pricing is fantastic. And then you start to dig into some of the feature sets that it has, the ability to go into the diagnostics council and see output from the terminal or from the system processes or to be able to kill those processes without ever actually controlling the screen of the user, to be able to deposit or uh, or get a file from the user. All of those are the kind of tools that when built in and utilized properly allows us again to reduce the friction. So somebody opens a ticket and says, we want XYZ change made. We're able to do that without interrupting their workflow. So from their perspective, we're a better IT company. And part of that is choosing the right tooling. I want to open uh, up for a couple of questions. So you can get questions to us a number of different ways. You can call us at 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You can join us in our interactive Jitsi room at geeklab.ninja. Or you can message Marlon. Marlon is our questions bot. At questions, colon linuxdelta.com. His name is Marlon Kapavik asks, I'd be curious to know how often your clients have problems that might have been easier solved by a custom written software versus finding an application in an existing FOSS solution. So how often do we go out and we'd be better off writing a piece of software than just picking up an open source thing and dropping it in? How often does that happen? I feel like it's not like I feel like times where you're trying to solve a problem and maybe there's not a piece of FOSS software that solves it completely, but then end up you end up going with like different FOSS tools that you can tie together mm. to build a solution. Yeah, kind of like, like you know, like the the uh, kiosk thing. You know, using Ansible Ansible Poll to be able to update those without actually have to go on site. So let's talk about that a little bit. So we have we have hotels and their their use case is simple. If you've stayed at a hotel, undoubtedly you've seen the little business centers that are there and you can go up and use those business center computers and you can print things off of it. You can print your boarding pass, look something up online, whatever it is, right? And so when we have clients that approach us and say, well, this is what we want. Okay, how do we serve that client? Well, well, we need to make sure that the user's privacy is protected. We don't want people, we don't want one person downloading a boarding pass and somebody else following behind and getting that getting a copy of that boarding pass, compromising that person's information. Well, we want to make sure that the users of those machines don't have the ability to uh, to attack those machines or destroy them, causing the hotel you know, damage and those kinds of things. Um, so how do we do that and how do we do it with open source tools? I mean, we could put a Windows box in there and get whatever proprietary software that runs that, but how can we do that with a Linux open source mindset and serve those people as good or better than a proprietary solution? What do we come up with? Uh, I mean, we ended up, we set, uh, it set up using Ansible, uh, so that you can set up the kiosk as many times as you want and you get the exact same setup. Um, and then, uh, we used, uh, ButterFS, uh, as the file system so that we could take, take the, the user that they would, uh, connect with and, um, we can make that a sub a butter a salt a sub volume and then create a snapshot of that. And so then what it's set up is that whenever the computer reboots, it takes that base snapshot and just puts it over the top of that user. So it brings the user back to the state that we set it up at, at the beginning. Um, and then we just, we took the, uh, the log out 
and we just made it a, it's a logout button, but it reboots the computer. So they click logout, it refreshes the computer, all the files are gone. And they're back to a blank state. Yeah. A fresh state. Um, and so again, is that as straightforward as a proprietary solution? No. Did it, did a drop in FOSS solution exist? No. But Ansible existed. A Linux distro that had a browser existed. An office suite existed. An internet connection existed. So can we combine all of those to make a solution? Yeah. Comp- uh, combining or modification is definitely the route that we end up going a lot of times in those solutions because because the the community is so vast, we have so many different solutions that we can pick and choose from or, you know, pick and say, hey, it's missing this little thing. Let's have our developers just fine tune that just a little bit. Reducing friction. Tony asked, I'd be interested in knowing if you charge customers extra if they want to make changes to an already working solution. Would that be a charge to not have them abuse your time and technician time? So uh, here's here. Let me lay some of this out. So there's two ways that clients can hire us. The first way is a managed service contract. And the way that that works is you tell us what you want, a computer, a router, a switch, an access point, a phone, whatever it is. And we will tell you what the monthly fee to maintain that thing. Now, no matter what you do to that thing, no matter how badly you break it, we will fix it for you. And there you never pay anything more than that monthly fee. Now, the way that we're able to do that is, again, we highly control the environment that and when I say control, I don't mean we lock other people out. They can have root access to all of the things, but we have systems in place so that no matter what you do, we always know we can bring you back to square one. And then we take measures to make sure that your data isn't affected and and we design a solution around that. The second way that you can do it is you can just hire us hire us hourly and we'll bill you 120 bucks an hour and we'll do whatever it is you want us to do. So if you say, hey, this is a working solution, I want you to come in and I want you to do X, Y, and Z. We're happy to do that. We're happy to come out and do X, Y, and Z. If it takes us seven hours, you're going to get a bill for seven hours. We always try to quote things before we do them. Now, if you want the best price, you don't have us do that because if we quote, we're going to quote high because we have to cover for things are going to go wrong sometimes. So we can either just bill you for the amount of hours it takes us to do whatever the thing you want us to do, or we can provide you a quote understanding that you're going to pay more if we quote it out ahead of time. And we don't quote things that we don't know how we're going to tell you like, Hey, we don't know what we're going to, it's going to get hairy. So I think the answer to your question is we, yes, we charge them extra. We don't charge them extra, but we bill them appropriately for our time. We try to set the expectations up front of what they can expect and what we can do for them. Tony asked, what is the services that you have the most customers coming to you for? And that's, that's a tough one. I feel like right now what's been really popular, at least, uh, Maybe this is a little bit biased because I do work a lot on the installation side of things. Has been cameras and access control has been extraordinary. Everybody got a security grant in COVID. Everybody got a security grant and everybody wants to have door fobbed access and and cameras. I I guess I would say over the history of AltaSpeed, our our bread and butter has always been networking in some form. It has what that means has morphed over time, but. Before we can put an access control system in, we kind of have to have a network. Now, if you already have one that we can work with, okay. Most of the time, though, when we go into a client site and we say, hey, your network isn't capable of doing the things that you want it to do, we're going to upgrade your switch, we're going to upgrade your router, we're going to upgrade your access points, we're going to upgrade your cabling, we're going to upgrade your fiber links, and we get you to a place, again, to where we know we can manage you well. So it it is all over the board. We have everything from people who want custom software solutions all the way through 
I, I want you to build us an office, soup to nuts, do everything and, and, and have it done. A typical ask, how do you deal with the situation of a client who says, I need to do ABC and you set them up for ABC, bill them. Then they come back and say, it's not working. And you find out it's because they actually want to do X, Y, Z. So they didn't communicate their needs clearly the first time. Here, uh, let me start the discussion out this way. So we have a process that we follow, and it's our discover. It's it, I don't. Do we have a name for this? I guess our sales process. Yeah. So we start in discovery, and the purpose of discovery is to identify what the client's needs are. So we start by sitting down with them before we've ever talked about a solution, before we've ever talked about what they think they need. We start with our uh, our our our. Uh, our, our process of here is what our project flow looks like. And so we start with discovery and sit down and we go through and say, we ask clarifying questions. What do you think you need? Do you have any solutions that you already have in mind? What's your budget for the project? All of those kinds of questions. Then we go into our R&D phase. And this is where we come back into the sandbox and say, okay, here's what we think the client needs. Here's what we think is going to work well for them. And we build it inside of our shop, inside of our sandbox, and we test the bejeebers out of it and see if we can break it, see if it's going to work, see where the pain points are, because we want to find out that before we get to the next stage in the process, which is plan and pricing. So this is where we go back and say, okay, you've told us what you think you want. Here's how we think we can serve that need. Here's how much it's going to cost you to get that. Now, part of the R&D and planning price and planning process is they will look at that solution oftentimes and step through it and say, yeah, that that definitely meets my needs or that's hopefully not that this always works, but hopefully that's the point in the process where they say, no, I wanted to do X, Y, Z and you made it do ABC. So we find that out before we've ever actually. Or, well, it's not true that we've never ordered because oftentimes in R&D we order it and then we're just on the hook if they don't want it. Well, And R&D typically is asking a lot of questions, right? We're we're trying to figure out what that's that original uh, stage of the ABC, right? We're trying to figure out what that is. Um, and but and, in, ideally we would do that in discovery, right? Right, yeah, ABC, and I would say discovery is more so finding the the, the client and going say, hey, um, what what are your general needs? And then mm. R and D is more of the specific questions. You know, uh, hey, this was the solution you wanted, but how do we want to go about? Cre- or here's the problem that you had, but how do we go about solving that problem? Yeah, and, and I think that's where we get into the R and D and figuring out what is the actual solution that does that for them. Um, and then typically, once we've figured that out, we'll go into presentation. Yeah. So planning and uh, sorry, I, I feel like more times than not, it's not that it doesn't do what they want to do. It's not doesn't work. More times, it's oh, we actually need to do the all. We need also yeah. do this, and then that's you know trying to figure out how do we do that, and then what that's yeah. going to cost them. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the times, there's a feature that people don't even think about that they need because they use it so often, or it's or it's something that's such a small, simple task that they go, "Hey, we also needed to do this. We just didn't even think about it because it's something we don't have to think about normally." Yeah, like I mean, like this week, you know, you know, customers like, "Hey, we need a drop over here for this other door." Oh man, <laughs> and yeah, and, and, but but anyway, again, kind of circling back to that thing, like so with that specific drop, right? We had sat down with the client, we went through the discovery phase, we went through the R and D, we went through the planning and pricing, we got to the presentation where we said, "Here's what we want to do. Here's how we want to do it." As part of that discussion, we told them, "Hey, if you if you want to add any drops, 
let's do it now while the building is open and we can get the list in the right place and do all the things. So are we sure we have all the network drops? Yep, it's good, it's good, good. Okay, great. So then we moved on to execution. So we've done discovery, we've done R&D, we've done planning and pricing, we presented it to the client, they're good with it, we went to, we went to execution, we started getting things done, and in the middle of execution, we go, hey, can we get a network drop over there, over there, like on the other end of the building over there from the knock? Yeah, Past all those walls and all of those those big tall ceilings with now stuff in the middle? Yeah. With all the doors that we can't get through? Yeah. Right. So at that point, again, lessening friction, serving people well, we circle back to discovery. Now we're back in the discovery phase. Okay, so they want to have a change order, They something that they didn't anticipate. So we've gone from ABC to XYZ. We don't tell the client no. We just go back into discovery. We identify what their new needs now are, go back into R&D. How in the world are we going to get a cable and i mean really it was three of us honestly sitting there for an hour to get to give you guys a little bit more context into this i mean it it sounds silly right oh we just move a wire to the other part of the building uh the part that you have to really understand about this project and why this can be such a daunting task is uh in a building and a commercial building this size right it's these when you start the commercial project they strip everything down, right? They tear all the old walls out that they don't need to be there anymore because they want to create new classrooms or new open areas for playgrounds or whatever it may be, right? And essentially, in that teardown process, it leaves everything wide open, right? There's no walls in the way. There's no piping. Flooring. It's, it's, it's no flooring, no nothing, no sheetrock up. So you want to put a wire in, you just put it in between the studs and then the sheetrock guys come up later and, and close it up all nice and neat because nobody wants to see a bunch of wires running around their building. They just want the things to work, right? So they come back through and they go, okay, we're, we finish up. They well, got and, all the sheetrock up. I think up. an important part, if you're doing this project, like if you're the other end and yeah. you're planning this for your company, what you have to understand is once you get to that part where everything is stripped down, put my suggestion to clients is always put two drops of cat six in every wall. Yeah. Because it's so cheap to do. It's so easy to make drops when we're wide open. It becomes virtually impossible to do that after we've closed stuff up. Absolutely. And then simple things that you don't even think about, right? Like what happens when we put, so in a commercial building, especially one of like this size, you know, you have ceilings that are what? 10, 15 feet, maybe even more than that, 20 feet in this case, I think, something probably like that, uh, height-wise, right? And then you add a drop ceiling in that cuts that in half. So you originally had all of your cable going up to the roof and then through the rafters and then back down to your locations. Now, try fitting a ladder through a false ceiling grid. And And getting up 40 feet above that. Yeah, try getting 40 feet above that while trying to run the cable. So yeah, absolutely, there's going to be those change orders. So then we just look and and we go back to like say, we now start looking back into the discovery phase and we go, hey, how do we do this a different way? Because now things have changed. Because they need something different. And so again, to kind of circle back, we're not telling these people no. It's just we go back and we replan and and price. Then we go back and present it. And then we go back into execution. And this is uh, uh, then the last phase of our process is the follow-up process, which I think some companies overlook and I think it's really important. I had a siding company and this is what, actually what I stole this from. I had a siding company do uh, some work for me and they came out and I told them what I wanted and they came out and before I knew it, there's just a truck of guys in my front yard and backyard just ripping parts of my house out and putting stuff on. They do a spectacular job. I mean, just a bang up job. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I can't believe they did that for the price that they quoted me, but that's that's really great. They did a good job. And I was waiting for the bill, waiting for the bill, waiting for the bill and I didn't get it. And I'm thinking... That's kind of weird. I get a phone call. Hey, this is so-and-so with the siding company, and I just wanted to call and see how everything went. 
you guys did a fantastic job. I couldn't be happier. I, the only concern I have is I haven't seen a bill. Uh, is there a problem? No, no problem. We're, you know, actually we're, we're right on budget. So you're good there, but we just didn't want to send you a bill until we knew that we had served you well and that we'd serve, we'd met all of your needs. And I fell back in my chair and I thought, man, that is the way to do it. Right. And so we have, we have a follow-up process. We go back to the client and say, Hey, here's what you asked us to do. Here's how we accomplished that task. Here's how we've served you. Does that meet your needs? Do we get everything right? Is there anything that we can do different? That's before they get the bill. And the whole idea there is if there is an opportunity to serve someone better, if we did make a mistake, we can take that into account before we send them the bill. Hey, you're getting a discount because X. You're getting a discount because Y. Hey, that thing didn't work right. Okay, well, we're going to get it replaced or we're going to get it R8 or whatever it is. All, we we have served you above and beyond. We want to meet or exceed your expectations before we ever talk about money. Because again, have either of you ever once heard me say, well, we got to do it this way because that's profit or that's money or that whatever it is. No, exactly the opposite. A lot of the times, you know, it's, hey, maybe we didn't quite follow up on this thing. So, you know, what? we're going to do the right thing and, and cover that for the customer, right? You know, ultimately at the end of the day, if that's serving the goal is our main priority, that's where it has to be. Tony asks, are you able, or, uh, Atomical asks, how do you deal with a client that continually blames the solution instead of acknowledging their own lack of knowledge or mistakes? Peter, any thoughts? I, I'm, I'm not sure how I, I handle that one. So what I would tell you is, or what I would tell, uh, uh, atypical is this. So again, going back to our mission statement, coming alongside clients and helping them leverage technology to its full potential. When we come into, uh, when we come into a place, our job is to learn that technology. If they could learn it on their own and knew how to correct their own mistakes, they don't need us. Like we don't have food to put on our table then because we're not getting money because they don't need us. They figured that out. The whole reason we're in the room in the first place is because they said, Hey, we do. And then insert the name of the industry. That's what we're focusing on. You're the geeks. You tell us how to use this. So sometimes you come across technological problems that aren't solvable. If you tell me, hey, I need to run Microsoft SQL, I don't want a $50,000 bill for licensing, I can't help you there. If you want to run that piece of software on that piece of server, Microsoft has put a line in the sand that you have to follow and I can't be responsible. Now, it is my responsibility to communicate that to the client and let them know up front, again, in the pricing and planning stage, in the presentation stage, we've come across and said, hey, you want to do it this way, it's going to cost you $50,000. Oftentimes, almost always, that prompts the question, well, is there another way? Absolutely there is. Let yeah. me tell you about my friend MaraDB. Well, and to the more I think about that question, <laughs> it kind of caught me off guard there really. Uh, the first time I, I read through that, I'm like, oh, man, I don't even know how I handle that. But really, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, teaching is how we handle that, right? We go, right. hey, if if you think the solution is the problem and you just aren't able to figure out how to use it, we are more than happy to come along with you know the pen and notepad and go, hey, here, here's how you do this. And we'll, you know, we'll explain it out, make the diagrams, show you, you know, any way that we can help you use your tool. If, if initially your guttural reaction is, oh man, this thing just doesn't do what I want it to do. But we obviously have, we know that it does what we want it to do and Mm -hmm. we'll just need to show you how to do that. So I think really the, the answer that I provide to that now that I'm able to kind of think through that is honestly teaching and helping, you know, we want to provide that helping hand and teach them how to use their solutions. Yeah. And, and so, and so we do that in two ways. We help them understand where the limitations of their chosen technology are. We help them understand 
what some alternative options are. Oftentimes they're far more cost effective than what they may have landed on. And if they tell us, hey, I just need to, I don't care how you make the pasta. I just need the pasta to always be available. Okay, boss, we got that covered too. We know what tools we can put in place to run your business that's going to work 100% of the time. We know how to leverage those tools and we can teach you how to leverage those tools to get the maximum benefit out of it. Tony asked, how are you able, are you able to share how you price a solution or support contract? So when it comes to pricing, uh, again, hourly rate, 120 bucks an hour. So you can hire us to do whatever you want. If you, I mean, I mean, I guess if you hire us to come like plant a garden, we'd probably tell you go hire a gardener, but within reason, could be a fun you, project though. Actually, if weekend there was, gardening you know, project, raspberry Pi, automate the watering. Maybe there, there was something go. here. We can, can, we, can we build a robot to like plant the garden for us? A CNC machine to drop the seeds into the ground. See how this works? Them? This yeah, is all the R and D process. We would have, we would build you the most technologically advanced garden. If you, anyway, this is the idea though, right? You can ask us to do anything because we lower the friction tech technology. And, and this is, I think, what sets all to speed apart from most other IT providers is we don't tell you, well, this is the supported solution and this is the end. No. How do you want to do it? You Would you like to do this? We can explore that for you. And so we we basically price it hourly is the answer to your question. When it comes to support contracts, again, those are a little bit more uh, locked down. So because it's a contract rate, because we tell you it'll never be more than X amount of dollars, as much as I want to serve people, I also have to make sure that the business doesn't go broke. And so I have a responsibility to my family and God and the people that get a paycheck from this company to make sure that things are priced appropriately. And so the way that we do that is we go and say, here are the very specific set of circumstances that this uh, supported thing will work. And a lot of times what we can what we found is we can use technology to take all the handcuffs off. So you don't have to think about, well, what can my Windows box do? Whatever you want it to do. We have snapshots in place so that when you break it, we just roll back to the day before when it wasn't broken. When you try to try a new piece of software and you're not sure how it's going to affect it, we'll just load the piece of software on it. And if it breaks it, we'll come back and communicate, hey, this caused a breakage, this caused a blue screen, you can't run this version and that version, whatever it is. We we work our we we work that process. Um, and, and, and again, that's how we bring value to customers. If we weren't doing that, they wouldn't need us. Kapavik asked, or Tony asks, uh, what access control system do you typically deploy? So this is a fun one. Oh, baby. Am I excited to talk about this one? This is a fun one. This was one of the R&D projects that I took on and just made my baby. I loved getting to learn about this device. So we had previously standardized on access cameras, and we were just thrilled with the quality, the the long-lasting, the image quality, everything about them was phenomenal. So when we got a client that said, hey, we want to put doors in, but we want them to be accessible remotely, key fob, the whole nine yards. We want to do all of that. Uh, we said, well, let's look at access. What does access have to offer for so door to, control? So to, to give some backstory, so we previously the company was using, Altuspeed Technologies was using uh, uh, carry systems. And the thing that I liked about carry systems were they were local. There was no cloud thing to it. It was all local. But the problem was it required Windows software. And so we would install it for clients and it worked. And for the most part, the hardware controller itself is platform agnostic, but you're running a Windows VM to program it. And we were trying to get away from that. And so you and I sat down and said, what is every available access controller out there? And I think we sat in my office and I started making lists of like, here are the benefits, here are the cons. And we found some really ugly, terrible solutions. Yeah. 
And then we came across the Access A1001. Yeah. Thank you for hopping in there. I, I sometimes forget Alta Speed existed before I was here. <laughs> so yeah, uh, essentially this was the start of, of me looking into some Access projects, uh, or Access Control projects. Uh, so the device that we've standardized on is from the Access lineup. It's the A1001. Uh, couple cool features about it is it has, it supports up to dual uh, doors with uh, external power supply, um, single door over PUE. Uh, it has things out uh, or it has outputs for uh, obviously a reader, uh, two doors, uh, the actual lock, uh, and then also other IO accessories. So our, uh, you know, LEDs or uh, any kind of thing that you might want to put on a relay. Uh, for example, uh, one of the things that th- another product that Access has is their door phone system. So you can s- mm. uh, set it to integrate with a SIP system. Um, a lot of people will have like a front desk where they'll have a phone where when you press the button on the, the front door phone, uh, it'll call a front desk phone. The person at the front desk picks up the phone and says, hey, why are you trying to get into our building? They say, you know, I'm the IT guy. I'm here to work on your door phone system. We go, okay, great. You know, let them in. And it, it integrates with all those kinds of things. Uh, the other great thing about it is it has... Uh, Basically, uh, you can mesh them together. So you can have, since each controller only does up to two, two doors max, uh, you can have multiple controllers and they can all integrate together. So you can have multiple controllers do the same schedules, the same credentials, all of that kind of stuff through networking of the access controllers. They have their own built-in UI for this. Um, but also, if you'd like to integrate, really the power of this device is the integrations you can do, right? Mm. Uh, one of the things is if you want to integrate this with some of the cameras, you can go to our NVR solution and look at the Synology surveillance station where you can set it up so that way when someone swipes their key at a door, there's a camera pointed at that door and anytime they swipe their key, there's a photo or a five-second video taken of that person entering the building and you can know that, hey, Tony's not using Tony's key to get into the building. Tony's using Jim's key to get into the building, and that's not okay. Um, So you can do kinds of cool things like that, uh, and it just takes... Uh, surveillance and security to a whole nother level with the Access A1001. We tried to build, we always try to build things as modular as possible, right? So when we looked at it, we didn't just go, well, what's a whole hog solution that we can drop in? Because Access makes readers, right? But we looked who makes the best Access Control reader, and we landed on HID. Who makes the best yeah. credentials, and we landed on the Proxy 3? Who makes the best door strikes? We landed on Adam's right. Who makes the best door controller? We landed on the Access A1001, but tomorrow, let's say that this controller, which requires no cloud subscription, which requires no internet connection, uh, we actually had a client that we installed one of these for their office, the, the way that their project was going, they didn't have the internet in as we put it in. And I sat down with the client and said, well, the bad news is your system isn't on the internet. The good news is nothing we ever installed needs the internet. So your access control system works just fine, um, which wasn't the case from the literally the very last access control project we came from a very large deployment and wasn't dictated by us. They told us, hey, you're using this cloud system that we already have. We couldn't have been less pleased with the way that that came out. So as we're able to compare and contrast, we said, hey, this works really well. But if we ever want to swap the A1001 out, you can go swap that out for a Kissy system or you can go swap that out for, uh, you know, any big name board. And you can use the same readers. You can use the same strikes. You can use the same wire because it's 
all modular. Absolutely. And I want to just jump in here. I want to ask, flip the question back on Noah. Can you tell us a little bit about HID's lineup of readers? These things are incredible. Yeah. So the I, it's interesting. I've talked a little bit about the show. I, I, I used one of the HID products that is a standalone system. So it's in a, it's a reader. It's the controller. It's everything for a few hundred dollars. And you just mount it. You supply 12 volts for it. And, and that's what I'm using in my garage. So I can open the garage door and my shed so I can get into the shed. And I had a listener write in and he said, well, I was told that HID keys are not secure. And that's true. They're, the Prox key system, it's been around for 30 years. They're not secure. You can duplicate them. In fact, I can duplicate them from across the room. What I tell clients and what I would tell anybody that's looking into access control is understand your threat vector. The vast majority of time when we put access control in, we're putting it on big, gigantic glass doors. And you know what's way easier than buying all the technical equipment to duplicate an HID system and then reprogram one and then go up and clone the key and then all the just take a brick and throw it to the window and then just walk right through? That's way faster. It's way cheaper. It's way easier. And it's more likely. So we have to kind of consider the threat vector, right? And so that's why what I what I responded to the listeners. I said, hey, in my shed, in my garage, I don't care that you could foreseeably find my HID key and duplicate it and get it out there. Yes, you can do that, but there's easier ways into my garage. There's easier ways into my shed. Now, if you want a solution, and again, we talk about why HID lineup is some of the best out there. They do support their CEOs. Their CEOs actually has a cryptographically unique key and a crypto is a, a private key. So it's doing where you can't duplicate it. And so this is what's used in the White House um, to secure things like the president is they're using the, the HID CEO system. The nice thing about HID and why I really like them as a company is they make the standalone unit. If you need a few hundred dollars and just need to be able to tell a client, the same key that you use for all 600 of your doors can open that shed that's out in the middle of nowhere with no internet connection and no power. How'd you do that, boss? Well, we have 12-volt battery, solar panel, and uh, get you up and running. We can do creative things like that because it's universal across the system. When we need that extra security, HID has us covered, and they have a product for that. The other thing I like about HID over a lot of their competitors are their competitors will have a quote-unquote mobile app, and it generates a unique seed, and that's what they use to enroll to use the phone to unlock the door. The problem with doing it that way is if you ever reinstall the app, now you now your key is unenrolled, and you got to start all over again. With the HID system, it actually memorizes the NFC tag that's inside of the phone. So without any special hardware, any special app, any spe- special configuration, you literally tell the user, can I see your phone for a second? Hold it up to that reader. Beep, thanks. Now your phone's enrolled. My phone is a key? Yeah, your phone is a key. People will drop their work key in the parking lot, and then they'll drive off and think, ah, get it tomorrow. Somebody drops their phone. <laughs> Turn it around right this second. I can't leave that, right? You might forget your work key at home. Chances are you're not forgetting your phone because you're texting all the way to work. And so then you arrive there and you present that as your credentials. We found that to be a much, much more effective way to deal with access control. Absolutely. I just love that feature. Is I try to carry as minimal stuff on me and, and being able to just use your phone as a key is superb. Kapavik asks, do clients pay for the discovery process? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because think about whose benefit who is benefiting from the discovery process? Is the client benefiting from the discovery process so that we can learn what their needs are and potentially make money to serve them? No. Heck no. That is 100% something that AltaSpeed benefits from. There's no benefit to the client for them to take time out of their busy day, put their business on hold to explain their problems for us, to us. That doesn't benefit them at all. It's 100% in our benefit. So no, we never, ever, 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 ever charge for sales or or the discovery process. We will spend, and sometimes, don't get me wrong, sometimes on these larger projects, it's 
weeks or months of, hey, we understand a need. We go back to the lab and we try something. It doesn't work. We go back to the client. We order something. We bring it back to the sandbox. We try it again. It doesn't work. We And that process evolves over months. They never see a bill for that. What we try to do is we try to be smart enough so that I would say for the most part, when a client comes to us with a need, we have a general idea of how to skate there. There might be a couple little hiccups that we got to work around, but we have a general idea of how we're going to get from point A to point B. So we start there and then we tweak. And because I think we're fairly smart guys and we have a passion for this stuff, doesn't really take a whole lot for us to arrive at a solution. But no, we never, ever, 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 ever charge a client for the sales or the discovery process. If anything, we try to build that into the pricing of the end solution because we know that there's R&D involved in that. Um, but that is 100% for our benefit, not theirs. Tony asks, how do you deal with a customer who comes to you asking if you can provide a solution for something that you've never done before? Do you tackle it even if it's a one-off? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're very open to to new ideas or trying new different things. I mean, that's part of what makes technology so interesting. I tell Peter all the time, you know, we're driving to a site or something. I'm like, how cool is it that we get to do X, right? Yeah. Like, who thought we would have been doing this crazy weird project? And and it's honestly, I think one of the things all all four of us here, or all three of us, I forgot how to count there for a second. <laughs> all three of us here really enjoy about the position we get to be in at Alta Speed is trying and learning new things. People ask me, what's your favorite part about what you've done at Alta Speed over the years or what's your favorite part about it? And I give people the same answer every time. When I was a kid, I'd go into a restaurant and I'd sit in the booth and I'd be looking over to watch the waitress walk behind the counter. And well, what does it look like from the cash register side? Well, what does it look like behind the kitchen? What does it look like behind the curtain? And, you know, the police officer, if I got to go into the police station, that was one thing. If I could go into PSAP where they actually had all the radios and the computers, that was cool. It was behind the scenes. That's what I wanted to see. That's what was exciting to me. And so as like the, we we get called not infrequently to do work for the police where they'll say, hey, there was a shooting or there was a robbery or there was whatever. And we need you to come in and extract footage off of this camera system, either one that we've installed or sometimes it's one that was already there. But they, you know, please work with us so they know. And the that kind of I don't want to say excitement is probably an offensive word to use, but being able to be kind of behind the curtain and go and play with all that stuff and see all the stuff that other people don't get to see is Without a doubt, my absolute favorite thing. And so when it comes into how do we deal with doing a custom solution, that's all that is our business model is taking what you see as a custom solution and finding the right uh, or taking what you see as a custom problem and crafting the best solution with the tools that we have available for you. Now, sometimes we have to be very upfront and honest with our client that, hey, the tool that you're asking for, the thing that you're asking for us to do we can't do that. We don't have the ability because we've not worked with that software before, that platform before. It's not compatible with the thing we do. So we try to be open and honest with, hey, this is how you can get there, but we don't know what the final product is going to be like. Tony asks, in reference to my previous question, for example, if a customer wants to move something like Azure and you're not familiar with it, you take the job, for example, Office 365. Yeah, I think that honestly, it kind of plays back into the last question that was asked. Um yeah, if it's something we don't necessarily know or aren't familiar with, we're going to take it. It's it we might try to find a better, you know, I think the the examples you use specifically are a lot more proprietary examples, you know, Office 365 or Azure, um but we'll try to find a good open source solution to move to. If not, if the, if the, if there's not a good one that we can move to, um we still do it because we do ultimately want to serve the client well. Yeah, and we want 
We want to reduce that friction. And so does that mean that sometimes we get in over our head? Yeah, it does. And so we try to price that appropriately. And when we're building quotes, we, you know, you can look at the list of in the discovery process. That's the time when we're trying to say, Hey, where are the unknowns? Where is the thing that we just don't know? And, you know, we were referencing back that extra cable drop. That was one of those things where we went in and we said, how long do we think this is going to take us to do this? And we didn't have an answer right away to that because you look at it and you're like, there's such a big unknown. We can get from A to B. We can get from C to D, but getting from B to C. That's a huge unknown. And it could be days. It could be weeks. It, we don't know. Um, and so you try to build that into the uh, the discovery process. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Jutana asks, you mentioned virtualization desktops. Are you using thin clients to access low NPCs or how do you deal with multi-monitor support? Spice, USB peripherals. How are you dealing with standardized standardizations on physical machines or imaging others? Yeah, this is something, actually, I think we're going to start looking more into this in, uh, coming up into February. We have a site visit, uh, in a, for a client that is fully virtualized and they're currently just accessing through, uh, Microsoft's provided RDP solution. So, uh, you asked about the different protocols, Spice, USB peripherals and all that different stuff. Uh, currently, or we are using RDP. Um, and we'd probably still use that same protocol, but moving forward, instead of doing it in just a standard uh, lightweight Windows 10 environment, um, which is kind of an oxymoron when you really think about that <laughs> phrase, uh, we really, essentially, we just try to strip as much of the Windows 10 stuff out as we can. But moving forward, we want to get away from that entirely. Uh, we've looked at a couple projects in the past. One of them uh, was... A product or a project called Thin Links, and it basically is a uh, Linux program that can run on something all the way down to as lightweight as running on a Pi or on really old, uh, you know, computers that hey maybe would have been decommissioned because you know they can't run the latest version of this or that. Um, and we, the nice thing about it that really makes it an incredible tool is its remote management. So they have mm. a portal that you can go through and you can have 20 different thin clients and you can go through and push updates to them. You can restart them. You can change how they're configured. If they have multiple monitors, what user they're using to RDP into which computers. So say, uh, Billy gets fired on Monday and Tuesday, Jonathan starts, you know, we're going to spin up a new VM for Jonathan. And it's going to have a different username and password, right? So we don't want to have to actually drive down to this client and, you know, actually, like, you know, Noah talked a lot about this during the show, trying to do things as much remotely as possible. We want to be able to use that management program to go in and just swap out their credentials for that user. And now he can, you know, when he pops up every time, it's going to say, hey, Jonathan, what's your password? He logs in and he has his uh, desktop. And man, the first time I used then links, the experience is incredible. You sit down at it and you're like, you were streaming Netflix. Yeah, I was, because one of the things I was like, man, virtual computers are great, but a lot of the times, you know, it's like, ah, I would never really use that for my full desktop is, is kind of the initial impression I got of a lot of the virtualization stuff until I started using RDP with a, a really good solid network backed behind it and, uh, a little bit of modification. And I sat down, I was watching Netflix, I was watching YouTube, I'm like, this is incredible. Like, the the real-time playback, it makes it so much of an immersive, more immersive experience. Yeah, we, and so, I mean, to answer your question, I guess we are, we're continuing to explore those protocols that are out there. At the moment, the real thing that matters to our clients 
is the virtualized workstation because that's where all the time is. That's where all the configuration is. That's where all their data is. That's where all the activation is. How they access that, they can get to it from an iPad. They can get to it from a Windows box. They can get to it from a Mac. They can get to it from ThinLinks. They can get to it from Remina. They don't really care, and we don't really care how they access that environment. If something goes wrong with the thin client, whether it's a plain Jane Windows 10 desktop or it's a uh, or it's a Remina thing, we would just blow it away and we'll start over. So we don't focus a whole lot on on the access machine. That's just kind of a whatever you want to use. What we really spend a lot of time tweaking and, and caring about and babying and 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 bolstering up is the VM behind that because that's what genuinely provides the experience to the client. And so it op- opens us up to have conversation with clients where we tell them, if your building burns down tomorrow, go to Best Buy, buy a computer, get us remoted in, and we'll have your infrastructure back up in 10 minutes because it's just reconnecting. It's just a conduit. Tony asks, do you guys host email yourself? We do not currently. I know Peter has talked about his experiences hosting email for himself personally, so I'll let him dig into that a little bit. Yeah, I I host my own email. I'm apparently one of those crazy people. I I'm, just I'm even crazier that I've essentially, I guess, it'd be like the distro hopping equivalent to your email server. Okay, I've done that three times, or just. I started on the original one. I started on I read mail and then I jumped to Madoa Boa and then now I'm on mail in the box and there's part of me that wants to go back and build it by hand. Okay. So that I can customize it to the way I want it to be. And what are you using right now? Mail in the box? Mail in the box. Okay. And it's working pretty well. It's been rocks uh, of the three. It's been the most rock solid. It helps you get like DKMI and DMARC and SBF all set up. So, um, I, with that one, I've never been on any blacklist ever. Okay. So I, I, I continue to maintain that people who host their email servers are crazy, but I'm happy to have you on the team because the truth is, Peter, as I skate into 2022 and looking at how we're going to provide some of these services to our clients, the reality is an office suite without mail attached is not terribly inviting so we either have to find a way to white label that work with the company that'll provide it or have peter denner spin it up for us i mean personally i'd I'd love to see a uh email server that is deeply integrated into a a next cloud frank are you listening are you listening frank do you hear that like where like where if it can get to the point where like it's just an add-on like you just click a button and it's installed and then you set up a new user they get an email address you use Nextcloud Mail as your web interface. I mean, you've got your contacts calendar already there. TAS, emails. What? What? What matters? What people yeah. want? Toad Rock. Toad. How do I? Write? Toad Rocks Boat asked, "Do you provide critical twenty four seven after hours support, and how do you balance that with such a lean team?" So we absolutely do. And and again, this is where the tooling comes into play, right? So. The using element as part of our our priority alerts channel means that I can keep an eye on what's happening in the business no matter where I am at and no matter what I'm doing. And because we have the ability to manage all of this stuff remotely, it means that am I am I divorced from, you know, am I at a point where I can just shut off? No, I take intentional time to do that when Peter or Kenny or Richard or Simon uh, is available to help out and say, hey, I'll, I'll get that covered and you can go do whatever it is you're going to do. But at the end of the day, yeah, we absolutely we have an emergency line. People hit that hit five, and we pay people to answer the phone, 
take the message, understand what the client, discover what the client's needs are and how critical it is, and then drop that into our alerts channel, which is monitored 24-7, 365. Um, so yeah, we, we do that. And, and how do we balance that with a lean team? We use open source technology to do it. That is the key. And it allows us to maintain those personal boundaries as well as serve our customers well. Hey, thanks for joining us for this special edition of the Ask Noah Show, the UltaSpeed origin story. If you like this, I've got good news for you because there's more to come in the coming years. We want to give back to the community. We want to serve you well. This show airs every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. You can find the show notes and all the articles and references that we use to build the show at podcast.asknoahshow. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. You can follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. I'm at Kernel Linux. I hope you have a great week. And again, thanks for joining us on the special edition of the Ask Noah Show. Ask Noah.